everybody said about the bird. Hello, gamers. Welcome to the Quarter Three Music Podcast. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm your co-host, Eric. And my game of the week is not Eclipse. And I am Tom Chick, and my game of the week is not StarCraft. Perfect. So we don't like science fiction, which is good because we're not going to be talking about it. Exactly. Forget that stuff. Let's yeah. let's let's talk sports or history, oh. one or the other. Interestingly enough, that uh, that song you just played, I always associate with sports, <laughs> and uh, I associate it with history because it was featured in uh, Full Metal Jacket. There's a scene of. Is, have you seen Full Metal Jacket, Bruce Garrick? Uh I have, in fact, yes. It's kind of like you know. Oh, when it came out. you did what? I saw it in the theaters when it came out. Yes, as did I, and uh, it's sort of like, oh, here's what Stanley Kubrick thinks of Vietnam. But there's a scene where they have a helicopter landing, and normally when you get a movie about Vietnam, uh, Francis Ford Coppola movies, for instance, they have those classic Huey helicopters, uh, and maybe you might see – there were Cobras in Vietnam, weren't there? There were. Yeah, maybe you might see one of those. Um, I think Blackhawks were not in Vietnam. No. That was after Vietnam. No. So, but for whatever reason, there's a scene of a helicopter landing in Full Metal Jacket, and it's some weird thing that I'm sure was a real helicopter, but it doesn't look like anything you've ever seen in a Vietnam movie. And it's obviously whatever Stanley Kubrick could get his hands on mm-hmm. in England, because he doesn't leave England when he shoots. So he had to import palm trees to make that movie. And for whatever reason, instead of the classic Huey, he has some weird, it looks like a camel. It's got a big old hump on it. Hmm. And it's a scene of a Vietnam helicopter landing, and that song is playing, and here's the helicopter that <laughs> Stanley Kubrick got for Full Metal Jacket. Interesting. I don't remember that scene. I'll have to go back and look at that. I'm sure it's in YouTube, isn't it? Everything's on YouTube. You could, I'm sure, yeah. Or or Netflix. Or Twitter. Or Twitter. I'm sure you will. Tweet the picture of the weird camelbacked helicopter at us. Yeah. Uh, if you yeah, trend it, trend it on Twitter. Yeah. Ha- hashtag. Uh, bird. Pod- hashtag yeah. bird. Yeah. Hashtag bird. There you go. Perfect. So wait, why would we play that music at the beginning of this podcast? Are we going to be doing a uh, podcast on the the Brooklyn Dodgers or whatever team you were just talking about? Yeah, no, I thought thought we would talk about Mark Fidrich, uh, the bird and uh, rookie of the year in 1976. No, uh, we are going to be talking about uh, a war game, about a board war game, mm-hmm. about Vietnam with uh, Volker Runke, who is um, a... Uh, a very accomplished designer has designed um, a bunch of games. We'll talk to him about that. But uh, the reason that we're talking to him is specifically about Vietnam, mm-hmm. uh, and the reason is that I am doing a series on uh, Vietnam games, a series of podcasts, uh, which I have tentatively sort of tagged as uh, thinking about history, talking about games. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and this series is specifically. Vietnam uh, board games. No World War II junk in there. Nothing no. about Rome, for instance. No, the, nothing about the Kaiser. No, nothing right. like that. No. Now, are there four? Board, so you've done. We're, we're talking to Volker Runke today. <laughs> By the way, one of my favorite things about having him on this podcast, we have never had on this podcast anyone whose name sounds so much like he's from Game of Thrones. <laughs> 
is an awesome name. Uh, but are there actually four board games about Vietnam, Bruce? Oh, my goodness. Uh, there are, I'm sure there are more. Um, I happen to pick the four uh, that I could get their designers to um, to do podcasts uh, for. Um, there's one that um, is a solitaire game. So I talked to Dave Kershaw, who's actually sort of a solitaire games uh, maven. He's designed a bunch of solitaire games, but he designed one called, and this, wait for it, it's called Vietnam Solitaire. <laughs> That sounds like an iPad game. Yeah, well, it actually would work great on the iPad. Uh, uh, and Dave is a programmer, so hopefully he'll get that uh, get that for the mobile platform soon. Um, th- another one is um, called uh, Hearts and Minds. That's by John Paniski. That game came out a while ago. Well, not a while ago. I'd say uh, three years ago, probably, and um, just had. It's a successful reprint Kickstarter, uh, which I happen to back just for full disclosure. Um, and my copy arrived uh, a few weeks ago, and I was looking through it, and I thought, wow, you know, that's that's one of the things that actually got me started on doing this, uh, was looking at John's design and trying to figure out, you know, why people, why people do such things and make the decisions that they make. Um, and I was comparing it to a third game, uh, an older game, um, but a classic some people may have heard of it. It's called Vietnam 1965 to 1975, and that was designed by, very interestingly, Nick Karp of uh, Shenandoah, uh, who, is, who have made some waves in, uh, in the mobile gaming field with uh, their fantastic um, Battle of the Bulge and then uh, Drive on Moscow, and now they're going to be releasing Desert Fox soon. But way back in 1984, uh, as, a, as an undergraduate at Princeton, um, Nick uh, Nick designed a game that, for the time, was and still I would say uh, f- really innovative, fantastically different from anything that you really saw then. Uh, Victory Games was the publisher, and they were sort of known for their intricate. They, they were not afraid of making detailed games. Well, of course, at that time. A lot of people weren't afraid of making detailed games. Um, there was no but, Euro back then. Everybody no, was, everybody was basically Ameritrash. No, Europe. Yeah, Europe didn't exist. They hadn't discovered it yet. So, <laughs> um, so this was uh, this the game. I mean, the, I, I hope that people will uh, listen to the podcast with Nick because it's um, it's very interesting. He has a lot of interesting ideas, and and uh, Volko actually uh, played that game, and you'll hear about uh, his thoughts about it. I think. Now, uh, so where can folks uh, hear these other three podcasts? You, these are part of um, the Three Moves Ahead series, correct? So yes. So uh, it, if you go to uh, www.idlethumbs.net uh, and click on the Three Moves Ahead, <coughs> excuse me, on the Three Moves Ahead uh, section, there will be um, a series of podcasts there that uh, Rob Zachney and Troy Goodfellow and Julian Murdoch and I. Uh, with various guests do, and uh, you should see um, the first one with Dave Kershaw posted there, and then please come back for uh, more episodes, because there will be eventually three there, and then uh, this one uh, here. And, uh, yeah, so so we're about to talk to Volko. Uh, a couple of things to let you know up front. Uh, CDG, which Volko uses a, a couple of times, it means card-driven game. 
Yeah, I thought it would have been a collectible dungeon game. Uh, I, I I actually intuited that. I'm not sure I've ever used that, but it's yeah. it's uh, I think uh, it's Twilight Struggle, like the probably the most popular representation of of that. You can call I it think, a genre, a mechanic, I guess. I think people for for uh, I think currently that's what people would think. Um, people would most be most likely to uh, associate that with Twilight Struggle. The game, the name really came, I think, uh, um, into into being. Mark Herman. Who was a co-designer on um, on Fire in the Lake, and who's designed numerous, numerous games. Uh, he's a long history in game design. He actually pioneered the uh, the idea of card-driven games with his game uh, We the People, which is a game about uh, the American Revolution, and that really sort of um, I, I have to say that that was one of the first games that really um, opened up the possibility that you could you could have a deck of cards with these events on them and they had these multiple uses and then uh, then he did for the people which was a civil war game American Civil War and then um, Ted racer who designed drive on Moscow uh, just uh, for people who might be familiar with that he designed a game called Pass of glory which uh, proved that you actually could have a really interesting good uh, Fairly fast-paced game, although it took a long time to play, but it was exciting. About uh, World War One and uh, Paths of Glory, I think it was 1999. People at that point thought, "Wow, this card-driven thing uh, really works," and so games started sort of using it um, very widely. And uh, Volko is doing with uh, the Cohen series. Cohen, I keep calling it that. The Coin series. The Cohen brothers. Uh, oh yeah, it's not Cohen. It's not like that. Coin series, counterinsurgency series. Uh, he's doing some really clever things with CDGs that he'll talk about, and that will, uh, after we've listened to Volko, Bruce and I will come back and comment on. Uh, also, we should point out we haven't played Fire in the Lake yet. Unfortunately, no one has. It's not out. But uh, as we'll mention, uh, Volko was kind enough to send us. Uh, a draft of the rules and a printout of all of the cards, mm-hmm. and we've, we've kind of looked over that in lieu of actually playing. Uh, right. And, and furthermore, I have only played. Bruce and I both know Volko's uh, game Labyrinth pretty well, uh, but Bruce's experience goes into some of his more recent games uh, more than my experience does. Bruce, you've played Andean Abyss. Um, yeah, we played Andean Abyss on this very uh, uh, very website. Yep, uh, uh, a forum game. Yep. yep. Uh, whereas uh, all of that stuff, you know, I only know Labyrinth. So basically, mm-hmm. Bruce is going to be uh, uh, in the driver's seat. I'm going to be in the back seat, poking my head up every now and then, saying, "Are we there yet?" That kind of yeah. stuff. Uh, yeah. So uh, let, let's uh, let's talk to Volko and, and stick around afterwards, because then Bruce and I are going to hang out. So here we go. Volko, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Bruce. Hello. Happy to be here. So, Volko, I'm just going to jump right into this. Um, you've designed a lot of games. Um, you are the uh, author of a series called uh, the Coin Series. Uh, describe for the listeners who may not be familiar with what this, with uh, this, what it, what that's all about. So they are uh, board war games, of course. Although they're on the, I would say the lighter side of war games, or the maybe the heavier side of of euros. My tradition is out of the the board war gaming tradition, Avalon Hill and SPI of the '70s. But I like uh, more and more uh, to play games that have a lot of a lot of payoff with with action for for little rules burden. So that's sort of what I'm aiming for. Mm-hmm. And 
In particular, I have been interested for some time in modern insurgency and counterinsurgency and guerrilla warfare and the like, and topics that are a little more off the beaten path, um, not, you know, East Front World War II or Napoleonics or American Civil War. Mm-hmm. And so having done a couple of um, successful enough, I guess, games for GMT, uh, I proposed to them a series on counterinsurgency, starting with Columbia, Andean Abyss. Mm-hmm. And so they use uh, a similar system that borrows a lot from here and there and adds some new things to present uh, modern insurgencies as a, a multi-party affair. And it's counterinsurgency coin, counter, short for counterinsurgency, so it's the coin series. And from my point of view, among the most exciting things is I've been able to lure several talented co-designers to help me. So I did the first one, Andy and Abyss, on Columbia myself, but every volume since then has been co-designed, and so most recently, Fire in the Lake on Vietnam, co-designed with Mark Cronin. Mm-hmm. Uh, Volko, can I ask you, what? so you started with Andy and Abyss and the, the Colombian uh, situation. Uh, what was the thinking behind laying out how you would progress from Colombia I think it's uh, Cuba, then Afghanistan, then Vietnam. Was there any gameplay consideration? Was it just sort of, uh, did it just sort of randomly fall that that's how the order that they occurred in? Were you wanting to ramp up to something? Uh, explain for us why these four games came out in this order. It, it was pretty random in, in, in who it was who, um, stepped forward and said, hey, you know, you should do a game on this. And, and I said, well, you know, I'll do that if you do it with me. I originally was, uh, Columbia, I was, I was drawn to originally. Uh, I read some articles, um, about, um, the Colombian successes actually against a multi-pronged, a really nasty insurgency, set of insurgency problems in the 90s. And I thought, this is such a great story. And nothing, nothing had been done on Columbia except for one other game, Crisis Games Columbia by, um, Carson and Karen Engelman, interestingly enough, published in my own little town here, Vienna, Virginia. But that had been 20 years before, and I was going to cover the period after that game was even published. So it was completely virgin snow, and I thought, this is just such a great a great story to tell. So that's how I got to, to Columbia. And then I thought, well, I, I intended to do something on the different continents. I really was interested in um, Africa and insurgencies there. So there was going to be one Southern Africa something. I hadn't quite set on what it was going to be. Something in the Far East. I originally was not going to do Vietnam because I thought, well, there are already some great Vietnam games out there. And uh, I thought maybe um, maybe something else South Southeast Asia, however. And then um, Iraq because in, in the system is um, it's designed for four parties and they're it, I mean, at least that many, but there you can pretty clearly come up with four parties in Iraq, and I knew quite a bit about Iraq, so I thought, I, and I want to do Iraq. So it was originally going to be something like that. It was going to be Colombia, Africa, something Far East, and then Iraq in that order. That was sort of my idea. And what happened was, in playtesting Andean Abyss, um, Jeff Grossman, um, one of the playtesters on that, um, approached me and said, you know, he'd been thinking about the Cuban Revolution for a long time, thinking about gaming it, and he thinks that it would it would work very well 
in this system and, and, and ought to be done. And I said, okay, if you, if you do it with me, we'll do that. And that'll be volume two. And so it really was just, it, it just went in that, in that way. Uh, and the third one on Afghanistan, a distant plane done with Brian Train. Uh, I knew Brian from having met him at some conferences and I knew his designs because they, some of what his work, um, uh, some of his work in internal wars and especially his design on um, Algeria in the 1950s was part of what informed my thinking too about how insurgency and counterinsurgency ought to be represented in a game. So I already knew Brian and I thought, uh, wouldn't it, wouldn't that be great if, if I could do something with, with Brian Train? And so I, to try to persuade him to do a game with me, I said, um, you know, do a game with me in the coin series and, and you pick the topic. I'll do any topic if you just do a game with me. And, and he agreed and picked Afghanistan. Now, it, it kind of sounds like uh, where a lot of folks deal with the commercial pressures of like what a publisher wants and what would sell, uh, you're more dealing with the pressures of your collaborators. <laughs> yeah, and I, I wouldn't say pressures. I'd say opportunities. Sure, sure. Yeah. Good. So it's interesting that uh, you know you're you've designed a system for four, for four players, um, four sides. Uh, the games generally have a, a solitaire mode, but I think that it sh- really shines with the four players. Did you start off thinking that you were going to make a, a system that had four players to it, or did you did your thinking about the idea of counterinsurgency lead you to thinking that to best model that you had to really have four actors with count with not necessarily uh, s- symmetric purposes so it's a, it was a combination uh, of both um, and it a lot of that grew out of the, the previous design I, I'd done which is labyrinth war on terror which is a two-player game and it was a two-player game because the idea behind labyrinth was if we were to start with Twilight Struggle, which so many people know, and we said, okay, what would that look like, not for the Cold War, but for the current um, uh, conflict between the West and, and, and Islamist extremism? Um, what, how would that work? And I kind of, that was sort of my starting point, and it was actually a commission from Gene Billingsley at GMT Games to do such a game. Uh, and and so that started out as a two-player, but there was there was I, there was some straightjacketing in that. That is, I felt a little bit limited in terms of okay, we have this immensely complex global struggle that is really um, many many different struggles somewhat loosely knit together, and and I felt that the compromises I made to make that into a two-player game were reasonable, but there was a lot of compromising. So having done that for Gene and, and, and having had that succeed and, 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 and sell out, I felt like I'd kind of go in any direction I wanted. And then Columbia, it was very clear that an interesting part of that story was the government dealing simultaneously with leftist uh, revolutionary guerrilla movements, principally the FARC, plus a few others, but principally the FARC, mm-hmm. right-wing paramilitaries who are seeking to fill the vacuum against the leftists, but at the expense of 
Colombian government legitimacy, and then finally the drug um, cartels, whether big flashy cartels like the Cali cartel or the micro cartels that replaced them. And so I thought, well, these are there are really these guys are all going in different directions. And reading the histories of Colombia, you had these situations in which the AU, the uh, right wing paramilitaries, the AUC leaders, and the FARC and the drug cartels and the government, they're all talking to each other and maneuvering against each other. Nobody, it's a real um, four-way brawl. And I thought, well, I have to have, I have to have four players to make that interaction organic without coming up with a lot of um, mechanics to, to, to force um, those situations, just make it for four players. And then, and then Jeff saw the same four the same number four in mm. terms of the number of parties in, in Cuba and and it fit well for Afghanistan and in my view it fit well for for what Mark um, Herman had wanted to do for a long time for Vietnam uh, and the internal were there so it's just fit, it's not always necessarily going to be four, I know there's at least one design out there actually that uses three no, yeah, at least one um Design that's well along that uses three and another concept for three, so it isn't yeah. destined to be. But four has just fit very well. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit part yeah. of what you um, what you asked about in terms of solitaire. That actually also grew out of labyrinth and semi semi um, serendipitously. In that labyrinth, I would not have done a solitaire component for labyrinth except the gene asked for it. And having done that there, I thought, well, if I can do it for labyrinth for two players i wonder if i can do it for four players and have enough solitaire systems that you could play it or you could choose solitaire two three or four and still have a four-way interaction so it's a sort of a challenge i wanted to see if i could pull off with pantheon abyss that's a pretty uh, steep challenge there i think i i, I want to make sure that we return to the idea of whether three or four or however many is appropriate for vietnam because i i thought that the li- I don't know very much about the Colombian conflict, but I did do some research about it when I was uh, playing Andy and Abyss, and it seems like that situation is is very much suited for that four player, the, the four uh, power uh, struggle. It, it's it's amazing how well that fits. Uh, and then I'm not I, I you know I've been reading the the Fire in the Lake rules that you've provided. And I'm, I'm, I have some questions about how you actually get to the to the four players, but we'll get there. Um, and um, Tom, we'll, yeah, so uh, because this is a series of, of discussions with designers about games about Vietnam, I just kind of wanted to talk to you um, a little bit about the topic of Vietnam in general. Have you played a lot of Vietnam War games? Uh, depending on what, my, what you mean, a lot is, but my my. Um First interest in anything insurgency is Nick Karp's Vietnam 1965-1975 from, from yeah. Victory Games. And yeah, I talked by to the way, mm-hmm. yeah, not not coincidentally produced under the tutelage of none other than Mark Herman. So yes, it all kind of comes back around. Yeah, and that game came out in 1984. I was uh, just starting grad school then, mm-hmm. and. Uh, picked up that game because my friends and I had sort of felt like we played World War II pretty much to death, and he was just something different. Right. And and I think I mentioned it in um, in the Andy Nippis d- design notes, mm-hmm. but 
I, I, I just, I still think it was absolutely phenomenal design, unlike anything else I had played, and more or less um, formed my view at that point about what a, you know, what a Vietnam game mm-hmm. ought to be. I'd already been reading books on Vietnam and doing term papers and and watching documentaries and so forth, but right. but I felt after playing Nick's game, I felt wow, now I really understand i thought anyway mm-hmm. how it is that you can have an organized effort without front lines and breakthroughs and capturing uh hills and cities and all that stuff that i was used to from all those world war ii games and and still have it be um coherent warfare mm-hmm. so I, it was just so illuminating and ever after i was interested in some, you know, hunt, you know, games where you could, the gorillas could hide in the jungle and mm-hmm. ambush you as you're coming, all that sort of thing. Right. So it, 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 it was a, a really a formative event for me playing that game. Yeah. Well, that that game though solves it. It's interesting that game solves a lot of problems about the Vietnam conflict by being very, very meticulous about separating things out. And you know, there's like five different kinds of military operations in that game. Mm-hmm. And they all have different mechanics. They all mm-hmm. play very differently. The military is, it, it's, it's like everything is, you know, Nick and I talked about this. It's almost, they're like little mini games where you, mm-hmm. you declare an operation and then this whole little thing plays out. And it, and it's very much, um, along the lines of, of the way that the, the, uh, the military sort of documented their progress through Vietnam through all these, um, operations, you know, operation, uh, Attleboro and Operation, you know, White Wing and, 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 and these, <clears throat> the idea that the military would, um, would organize these efforts and these efforts would have an outcome and, uh, and, um, to do that, the game had to make a whole bunch of, take a whole bunch of things into account and it was, it was, uh, it was an, an incredibly complex game. And it, I don't think you could really. I wonder what a game like that would would look like today. I mean, it, uh, well, it would look like Fire in the Lake by <laughs> Mark Herman and Volker Rookie. Seriously, if you when you when you do play Fire in the Lake, and I hope you will, mm-hmm. uh, I hope that you will find echoes of of, of Nick's game because uh, in my mind they're there very strongly. So, for example, some of the things you mentioned different kinds of operations and you decide what kind of operation am I going to put what units on and how big is that going to be? Is it going to be very local or is it going to take in a lot of resources? Uh, and then each operation has its own purposes and its own rules and its own sequence. Uh, and compare that to the coin series. It's more or less the same idea. You can choose how many places you're going to do this in. But you have to choose a type of operation. Each one has different sets of purposes, different ways that it works, and off you go. And you can you you have your operation Attleboro if that's what you want to do. And then also uh, another feature that's in the two coin series titles that have to do with a an expeditionary counterinsurgency. Okay, it's a very different situation than Colombia, where the government is, you know, they're there for the duration, right? Right. Right. Um, Afghanistan and Vietnam, the the foreign counterinsurgents are in a very different situation where they're trying to come in and with a an economy of, of resources and casualties get something done 
and get out, leave behind their friends in a stable situation and go home. Very different situation. So in Nick Karp's Vietnam, which I thought was, again, at the operational level, I can assign any units I want to this operation, and I can pick which operation, and then I you know, follow a flow chart to carry it out. I mean, it was very, very different from anything I knew, where it's like you move all your pieces, then you fight with all your pieces. No, I'm choosing which pieces to commit, and I have huge flexibility in that. You know, I thought, that's really amazing. So on a strategic level, the U.S. player, especially in, in Nick's game, can basically determines his own reinforcement schedule. Yes. Like he can bring in his whole order of battle in 1965 if he wants to. Of course, right. there are tremendous costs for that. The costs are political. And, and how um, empowering that is in terms of experimenting with different uh, strategies and alternatives when I don't have to follow the script. I can try this or try that. But built into the system are the risks and costs of doing that. And uh, I thought that was, again, just way um, ahead, I guess, of anything else in terms of uh, room for simulation. So it's very much like that in, I hope, mm -hmm. in the two recent coin volumes. And in Fire in the Lake, uh, if you're the U.S. player, you've got quite a bit of latitude in terms of how big a footprint you want to go in with, when and how early, but there are costs and risks, whatever you do. Marco, right. uh, to segue into something that Bruce mentioned before about uh, how you make a Vietnam game with four players, uh, to hear you talk about kind of one of the core values of a Vietnam recreation being the difference between an expeditionary counterinsurgency and an entrenched counterinsurgency, a local government. That, to me, I hear you talk about that, and I'm like, well, yeah, that makes perfect sense as for why you would split two players. One plays the U.S., one plays Arvin, the Army of the Republic of Vietnam. Uh, they have a very different kind of agenda and situation. Uh, so that, that right there makes me think, as you're making kind of what's, what might be described as a 2v2 game, there are four factions split into two sides. Uh, that makes perfect sense for splitting the U.S. and Arvin. Uh, can you talk a bit about splitting the uh, North Vietnamese Army, the NVA, and the Viet Cong? Um, what, what goes into making those two sides distinct from each other and controlled by separate players? Yes, absolutely. And it's an, it's an excellent question that I think is going to uh, come up a lot as, as people mm -hmm. look at the game once it's out there because it's not necessarily the um, common or even majority view of, of the conflict from the U.S. side. And if you get a chance to talk to Mark, I think he'll also have a, a lot to say on that. So uh, going back to how Mark and I got together to do this volume, that idea, and, and you'll see how this starts to answer the question you asked, um, because a lot of that does does come from Mark, and uh, happens, I think, to fit very well the four-player mode that coin, the coin series has been in so far. So, uh, reeling back to before Andy and Abyss was published, uh, as you probably know, Mark had been thinking about for quite some number of years doing some kind of Vietnam game that was that maybe had we the people at its at its deep root that was card driven, point to point, um, political as well as military. 
but he just had not gotten he just not gotten around to doing that. A lot of people wanted him to do it and so forth. And I got a call from Gene Billingsley, and he said, you know, you and Mark should get together, and you know, and bring this this concept to fruition. Work with Mark to get that you know Vietnam game done that you want to do so so much. And I, of course, I was among those who was like eager to get a Mark Herman design on Vietnam. So um, so I accepted, and Mark and I got together, and I wanted him to explain to me what his, you know, what did he want to show in this game that hadn't been in previous games. And what he talked about was a focus on the internal contest among Vietnamese. That the typical um, Vietnamese, Vietnam War focus for the U.S. period from the U.S. designer is going to be about the U.S. going into Vietnam and doing its thing and, and getting out and with whatever the conditions were there. So it's really the Yes, it's in Nick's game, for example, it's technically the free world allies, but the way the game is constructed, you're really the U.S. deciding on your footprint and your strategy. You're using the Arvin as you can, but then you have a lot of Arvin who are, by game mechanics, not cooperating with you. And then you have all this politics going on among the Arvin leaders. And so that it's not an organic relationship between two players as it would be in, in, in the coin series, but rather you've got game mechanics that simulate that tension. And so what Mark wanted to do was do a game where the focus is really on the Vietnamese. In fact, originally I think he wanted to start it before the U.S. really gets there in, in strength. And among the Vietnamese, he's looking at, uh, he wants to include issues like the conflicts among the Southerners, but also the not just political, but also historic, regional, and ethnic conflicts among southern, uh, central, and northern Vietnamese. So this was an important aspect to him. So already before the first coin series volume had been published, Mark was thinking about that conflict between northerners and southerners, including among the communists. And his original concept, because again, he was coming from a, a basis, we the people, of a two-player game. So he's thinking about a two-player game is, okay, we're going to start out and we're going to have the, the Southerners are fighting an internal war. And there's the regime in Saigon, and there are the Southern communists, the Viet Cong, and they're fighting, and they're getting support from outsiders. And the, the sort of the dilemma that he wanted those players to deal with is how much do they invite in outside help? In terms of the Saigon regime, of course, it's the United States and other free world allies, and for the for the Southern NLF, the National Liberation Front, the Southern Communist Movement, it's help from the communist bloc via the North Vietnamese. Okay. And the dilemma he wanted to show was that the more help you call in, the more these outside, these powerful outside actors take over the conflict for their own agendas and their own purposes, and you just end up getting swept up in that. So he's going from an inside-out rather than outside-in look at the war. He's starting with the war within the South, and from and the decision-makers, the players, are really representing the Southerners, and the Northerners coming in and the U.S. coming in are the alien forces that then, through some mechanics, would kind of hijack your agenda. 
Uh, so Volko, it almost sounds like the uh, the VC and the NVA are a counterpart to the U.S. and Arvin as far as they're an expeditionary insurgency force, you might say. Yeah, well, the um, NVA, if if you think about it, is in a way an expeditionary insurgency force. Of course, they're using not just guerrilla tactics, but conventional as well. And in the end, the mechanism of their victory was a an invasion, a conventional invasion of the South as if it was another country. So there is that. And so I went into that history with Marx, or the deep history of, of the design, to show that it was actually uh, originally a vision that Marx had for a long time, that there was some kind of a a conflict of interest or dilemma between, on the communist side as well, between the southerners and the northerners. So that, from 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 his idea of a two-player game in which you're playing the southerners and the northerners of the U.S. are kind of coming in and 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 channeling the conflict in some other direction, perhaps it's a small step to then say, well, why don't we just have it be in a four-faction format, which Coin already is, mm-hmm. and, and off it went. So that's a, that's a how did the game design come to be. That's not the historical defense of why is it plausible to argue that the north, the northern regime or the northern North Vietnamese army and the southern insurgents, the National Liberation Front or so-called Viet Cong, that it is generally accepted were created um, by the hand by the hand of Hanoi. Ha, you know, it's not the historical case that there is a conflict of interest between those two, and it's not typical view that they are. However, Mark seems to have already had that view before I ever talked to him about Vietnam, and and I must say that I had also been been persuaded that there was something to that. Indeed, when I looked at when I sort of asked myself, who, who are the winners and losers in Vietnam in the end, uh, it's, it seems clear that the Saigon regime is a big loser. And while there have been arguments that the U.S. counterinsurgency was actually quite successful by 1972, in the end, the U.S. fails to achieve its strategic objectives for the investments it made. So you I'll go along with the usual, I think, common view that the U.S. lost in Vietnam. And now let's look at the, the northern regime, the Politburo in Hanoi, and the southerners. The, the VC um, were devastated in the war. Um, and the big step in that was Tet in 1968. And after that, to follow up on that, a more effective, under uh, Abrams as opposed to Westmoreland, a more effective counterinsurgent strategy against the Viet Cong logistics and the Phoenix program and so forth, so that you don't really have much of a southern indigenous insurgent threat by the time the U.S. is pulling out in 72. What you have is a uh, transplanted northern insurgency, including northern-led and manned guerrilla units. And then the real problem, a, a, a massive conventional threat with armor and artillery and all of that, um, 
that is uh, sustained from the outside to the degree that even though it's pretty well defeated by Arvin and, and the U.S. Air Power in 72 Easter Offensive can come back less than three years later against the South that's not similarly supported from the outside logistically uh, or technologically. The insurgency in the South is not much left by 72. So there's, there's an argument, I think a good one, that the Southern insurgents are, are big losers too. That basically the historical outcome is in a four-player game, the NVA won. Yes. So the game in Fire in the Lake, we only go to the end of 72 and we sort of end with the U.S. gets, you know, its peace. And if and and I would put the sort of the rank order, the, the NBA is the big winner. Okay. Uh, followed by a distant second of the U.S., who by that point, what it cares about, it's, what its values is getting out with something like a chance of having the southern regime survive and getting its POWs back. Uh, but to the degree to which the U.S. achieved that pre-ephemeral, okay, agreed. Mm-hmm. And then behind that, um, the VC and the, and the Republic of Vietnam. And there's pretty good testimony that at, after 75, those southern um, fighters and, and cadre, political cadre who remained, were... Uh, not at all the top dogs, but in fact felt quite a bit put upon by these northerners coming in. And then you add into that the cultural aspects that Mark was interested in, the the, um, the Tonkinese in the north and the Cochin Chinese and the Annamites in the south. Uh, and and not from us, but in the histories, you, you'll see the term by U.S. historians, carpetbaggers, that you've got these um, then northern... Uh, apparatchiks who are controlling affairs in, in the South, and it, it doesn't matter so much what side you're on. Either way, you're you're now dominated by the Hanoi regime. Uh, to, to hear you describe this, uh, Mark, as far as in the, in the historical language, and knowing that you and Mark translated this into gameplay, uh, I'd, I'd love to hear more about how you take this historical perspective about the four different players each with a, a unique outcome after the war was over, whereas a lot of the conventional narrative is it was a good versus evil, and evil prevailed. You know, the communists won and drove the, the U.S. out of the country. Uh, so you've, you've sort of broken this down. You're looking at it through a different historical lens with four parties. You're sort of ranking how those four parties came out in the aftermath. Uh, and from this, you create, as I mentioned before, a kind of a two versus two game where... There are four distinct players, but for two of the players, you know, they're kind of playing cooperatively with each other, but also competitively. Um, and I think you've done this in some of the other uh, coin, coin, coin games that I haven't played that I know Bruce will be more familiar with. Um, but can you explain a little bit about how you have the sides work together while also at odds with each other in the context of the Vietnam setting? Sure, and and it is it is very much um, it's two v two, and I'd say the two the, those pairs of uh, contestants are closer in Fire in the Lake than they are in the other volumes because of the nature of the conflict. That is that is to say, typically we would see U.S. and Arvin players cooperate uh, a little more closely and 
NVA and VC cooperate a little more closely relative to those kinds of pairings in the other three games where okay. the partnerships are even more ambiguous. And I'm sorry to interrupt real quick, Volko, but no. since, uh, I apologize because I'm kind of the, the newbie here. Uh, it, it is, uh, is there only one winner? So it's a four-player game, but only one player prevails? Is that the nature of the victory conditions? That's exactly right. Okay. And so it is, so it is not a cooperative game, uh, and it is not really a team game. Every individual faction, if, and, and by the way, you can still, you can play it even without the bots. You can play 2v2 and have a player represent US and Arvin together and has to bring them both to victory together, mm-hmm. achieve both their objectives, and another player, the second player of two, playing Fire in the Lake, play the Communists, the NVA and the VC, and then what you're modeling is very, very tightly allied factions, mm-hmm. and so the game, and that works very well. In fact, we, we tested that a lot, too, because we thought a lot of people would want to play that way. They'd want to play it as a two-player, two, when you, you know, a two-player contest in which you have the free world allies against the Communists, and that's it. So you can do that, too, uh, and it works very well, I think. However, it, with four players, uh, each faction has unique victory conditions, like in the other volumes. Each faction establishes, through those victory conditions, a score, if you will, a victory margin. And if there are ties in that, there's a tie-breaking uh, system uh, to determine who wins. So what we, what, and the reason I, I did it that way in all the coin games is I want to always have that tension between overlapping but not identical interests and it's because that's the way I view life uh, that all of us any any endeavor in involving multiple human beings and, and military affairs included we are organized into groups and and those groups have interests and those interests might be very closely shared uh, for example uh, the the US ambassador in Saigon and the commander of MACV have very closely shared interests in trying to win the war for the United States, but they're not identical interests. There's actually uh, competing bureaucratic interests and competing political interests and competing career interests that are in the mix. And so the question is, what of that is worthwhile to model? Mm. So we have a U.S. and an Arvin. They both share a strong interest in ensuring that there is uh, substantial territory and population by the counterinsurgents, by the U.S. and the Arvin. They both need that, but they need it in different ways. And so now we get into very interesting, to me, interactions between the players because to succeed, they really do have to work together. But as the clock ticks on towards what ultimately will be the end of the war, any competing interests, any divergence in their interests, any differences in their vision for how the war should end has to come out more and more if the players are playing rational. And so that's the fun, is that that tension builds in the end because only one of them can actually win, even though they have to work together to do so. So that's an that's really interesting the way you put this all together because I have to say that you should never have called this game Fire in the Lake or at least you should never have gotten me to read the game the book Fire in the Lake because by <laughs> doing that I now have a completely different understanding of uh, 
sort of the ethnographic conflict in Vietnam than I did before I read the book. I have to say, for all the listeners who are listening to the podcast, uh, you should read Fire in the Lake. Uh, it's a very interesting book. Uh, it, it's, it's completely different from what I thought it was going to be. Um, and I won't get too much into it because it, it, this is about Volko's about you and your game, but I, I want to say that having read the book, I think it's I have to say the idea that there can only be one winner in this seems to be very much from the point of view of the different Vietnamese um, sort of factions and the and the idea of the different uh, elements of Vietnamese society at the time of the war. Um, if if you were going to make, I could you could pick another four factions. For example, you could just make this whole game have the uh, Americans and the uh, the Chinese and Soviets be sort of external game factors and have the whole thing be the communists, the Catholics, the, you know, um, uh, militant Buddhists and sort of the uh, animists of the, of the Vietnamese uh, villages. Uh, it seems to me like there are so many different, um, the, the idea of, of, of Vietnamese society sort of remaking itself in the wake of the French uh, colonization and then um, the transition to the uh, American um, support, which was very different. Um, but I, I can't quite see, I think by making the game end in 72, you actually get a, around the problem that you create by having all the factions have single victory conditions, because if you took it further, I don't think you could just, could you justify having the South Vietnamese uh, win and the U.S. lose? Because if the U.S. were able to pull out, Vietnamization worked, the uh, Viet- the South Vietnamese basically drove off the communists, the, both the, you know, they, they killed off the insurgency in Tet, and then uh, rolled back the uh, conventional communists. I can't see how that would be a loss for the U.S., but it would clearly be a win for the South Vietnamese. Yeah. I think no. I think you you raise a, a good distinction, and and that is um, it, it's very important for the victory conditions and what you're trying to represent. When does the when does this game's story end? Right? There's always an end point. It's like the edge of the map. It's kind of a time edge of the map, and of course things go on. Right. And uh, for the coin series, the focus I I believe has to be on insurgency and counterinsurgency. And I was fairly well influenced by um, Louis Sorley, a historian who wrote A Better War about the Abrams phase of the war, and the argument in that book that the counterinsurgency, the U.S. counterinsurgency essentially had been had been won by 72, and what happened after that was not really insurgency and counterinsurgency, but was a question of how much is the U.S. willing to back up Vietnamization after the Paris Accords and how much uh, is the NDA able to continue to mobilize and defeat the South with raw conventional military power. So that question, which then gets wrapped up into what's happening to the Nixon administration... And in Congress and the just uh, complete uh, revulsion in the United States with anything Vietnam is not 
it's it's not about all the uh, internal war aspects that the coin series is set up to try to handle. So I don't think I think I mean I think the the answer I came to very quickly was if we wanted to have the game resemble 1973, 1974, 1975, it's not going to be a very interesting game at that point if we set it up to be an interesting game for the actual insurgency counterinsurgency that the U.S. was 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 getting into uh, 64 to 72. I see. So what you're what you're really doing in the victory conditions, for example, if you win a game of Fire and Lake as the NBA, you haven't probably you haven't conquered South Vietnam. Your tanks have not yet rolled into Hanoi. What you've done is you have um, you have defeated the other three factions in such a way that you are positioned at the end of 72 to do that in a in a few years. You have weakened um, the Arvin in terms of its military control of territory. You've taken over some chunks, like say part of Quang Tri or a, a, you know, a, a border province here or there off the Paris Peak or whatever. And you've also undermined them politically by keeping their main means of governance, which were on patronage, um, to, to be weak enough that the regime doesn't have the, the control over the, the population that it would like to have. You have established your dominance over the BC as the main agent of revolution in the South, and you have bloodied the U.S. enough that it is not going to follow through on those commitments of Vietnamization, and so that 75 can play out the way 75 historically did. So the game is ending with the stage set for you to conquer the South rather than having completed the evolution. Mm-hmm. No, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, it's just, it's very interesting how in order to get the faction set up in the way that they play from, you know, the beginning of the game until 72, you really logically and mechan- mechanically or mechanistically, however you want to say it, have to stop there. Uh, and for the reasons that you outlined, it's very. Um, is, is that a, is that something that you realized was going to happen when you when you started designing the game, or did you kind of come to this point and say, "Oh, we have this whole other part of the war, which is basically a one-on-one conventional fight, and that's not going to work. So we need to we need to do something about that." So from from the beginning, I thought it would be um, sufficient and fitting to do six, 64 to 72, um, but it would have been it would have been viable to have to have. And what I want to say is this: in the coin series, you don't have a little turn sequence marker that says, "Okay, we're moving from 72 to 73 or whatever." Mm-hmm. Right? It's right. not. It's right. not that. I can tell you about how long a campaign is, but it's highly variable, and there's a lot of accordioning going on here. It's more abstract. Mm-hmm. Than that. If we did, we could still have gone further because it's not the case that it was inevitable. I and mean, when we play these games, because we think they're alternative paths that could happen, right? Otherwise, it's you know just a, a story, and we can read the book, and we don't have to play a game, right? Well, it's like Stratomatic baseball with guns. Yeah. So it might be that that 
it didn't go that way, and that in 75, the U.S. is still fighting an insurgency there, and the VC are going strong, and that never happened, and, you know, that could all be, and we could we could do that. I did that in my first published game with Jim T. Games, which was Wilderness War, which is on the French and Indian War. Yeah. The French and Indian War was wrapped up in 1760. I took the game out to 1762 because I thought that to have a real victory for the French, they have to hold out until they can have that peace negotiation in Europe. The whole French strategy was, we're going to win on the continent of Europe, and anything we lose in North America, we're going to get back later. Mm-hmm. But that took until 1762 to, to 63 to play out. So I said, well, then, French player, you're going to have to hold out another two years than they did historically to, to have that win in the campaign game. So we could have done something like that here. Um, but it, we have a pack of stuff to cover from 64 to 72, we got 130 event cards, um, and, and there's plenty more stuff we could think of to just in that period to have um, period events that to then start to sort of make up more stuff that might have happened that is insurgency from from 73 on. You could do it, but why? Mm-hmm. Well, your whole so in in your game, the, the big loser is actually the VC player. The VC are a big loser. I mean, certainly the, certainly the. Um, I mean, historically. Yeah, historically, the 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 VC at the end of seventy two, beginning of seventy three, I'd say the VC look w- w- worse than Arvin, right? Right. What happens to Arvin really is what happens to Nixon and and happens in the U.S. public. Mm-hmm. So yeah, in terms of the end game position, I'd, I'd I probably would put the VC at the bottom. Big losers. Uh, to hear you talk about all this, uh, Volko, um, amongst the other things, so, so there's this four-player perspective or four-party perspective on Vietnam that you've got, um, which sounds like a unique selling point for Fire in the Lake. Uh, beyond that, setting Fire in the Lake aside from the other coin games, what do you consider the core gameplay elements of the Vietnam conflict? Well, I'm not sure what you mean. You mean how does how does it contrast for instance, with the yeah, volumes like, to be yeah. Vietnam? Yeah. Well, what makes this different from Indian Abyss, Distant Plain, uh, right. as far as gameplay mechanics that you're using to model this specific point in history, this specific okay. conflict? And, and let me sure. just sure, sort of give you a little underhanded here. Like I noticed, sure. for instance, you have rules for, for tunneling bases, for the, mm-hmm. the supply trail, uh, of mm-hmm. course the distinctions between the U.S. having the, all the air power. Uh, tell me what sort of gameplay mechanics you're introducing into the game that make it uniquely about Vietnam. Right. So let me um, – there, there are many, and some are to make it uniquely Vietnam, and some, frankly, are because Mark Herman has different – and additional creative ideas than I or any of my other co-designers do. So there's kind of both of those in there that are exciting to me. Uh, but the, the, the biggest one is is the, the nature of the NBA, that we have a, a, a guerrilla army, yes, uh, but in the main a threat of conventional buildup and conventional evasions that are going on throughout this period periodically, which... There's no counterpart to in any of the other coin games. So we knew right from the beginning we're going to have to have, and the conventional forces in in the games are represented by troop cubes in in all the games. So we're going to have to have an insurgent faction, the NBA, that has troops, not just guerrillas. Mm -hmm. 
And how do we, and will that work? Because now we've got force on force conventional conflict. If we didn't have that, it would not be Vietnam. And, and we're putting that into a game system that is designed for situations, because I had not set out to do Vietnam in the coin series originally, is designed for situations of hunting gorillas in the bush. And would that work? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it does work, um, but it's a very, very different feel. And so the NVA are the the faction in this game that will be quite unfamiliar to anyone who's played the other volumes. The VC, you can... I mean, there are certainly unique things about the VC, their twists and so forth, but in the VC, compared to the Taliban, compared to the FARC, you're going to recognize a lot of the mechanics. Mm-hmm. Um, if you play the Afghanistan game, A Distant Plane... The relationship between the coalition and the Afghan government in a distant plane and the relationship between the U.S. faction and the Arvin in Fire in the Lake, you're going to see a lot of parallels. Again, there are twists, but in terms of the, um, the victory incentives and the capabilities, um, you're going to recognize origins of those factions in the, the counterpart factions in the Afghanistan game. The NBA has no counterpart. It's sitting out there in a kind of a sanctuary of Laos and Cambodia. It's building up its logistical system. It's infiltrating in more and more conventional troops in the south. And then at some moment or moments, it must spring into to danger and seize territory, largely conventionally, and hope that when it then gets hammered... Um, it, it still works out for the best. The strategy for the NBA in this game is, I think, unlike that for any other faction in the series so far. And so that's the, fir- the first thing I think of in terms of what's you know what, what's Vietnam. Mm-hmm. It's how do I how do I leverage the guerrilla warfare that's going on to enable a conventional evasion. Now, uh, Bruce has played, and actually, Bruce, let me ask you this, because uh, mm-hmm. Bruce, you've you've played other games in the the coin series. Um, mm-hmm. So, so the coin series, I, I mainly know you Volko through uh, through Labyrinth, which has a very Twilight Struggle structure, where each mm-hmm. player has a hand of cards, and you're forced to deal with the good cards and the bad cards. But a lot of the gameplay is, you know, what cards do I have versus what cards does my opponent have? Um, mm-hmm. You took all of that out in the coin yep. series by having a card played face up and the players can also see face up the card that will follow that one there's very public knowledge there um, mm-hmm. and instead there's kind of a round robin about who gets to take advantage of the card in alternate ways um, What was there anything that uh, and, and Bruce let me ask you this first because you've been looking at various ways to model the Vietnam conflict uh, do you see that that does anything unique for how to express what happened in Vietnam well I mean I think that the the thing that the coin series does so well is to sort of um, model the idea of the client um, just like um, in um, you have this sort of especially in, I think Andean Abyss Andean Abyss I have to say uh, Volko is one of my favorite games uh, it's, uh, it's really well done I think this it's it has this this uh, sort of 
uh, happy um, convergence of uh, sort of mechanics and then situation of the idea of the AUC being sort of this this parasite on the on the uh, on the government that uh, they need but they also don't want um, fits into the four player mechanics so well um, yeah the- I, it's actually my favorite relationship in that game as well is the government and the AUC players and watch how they interact yeah and and I think that that the way that that works sort of sets the standard for all these different client kind of the, it, you get a little bit of that the coalition and the um, and the uh, Afghan government in the um, in the, in the distant plane. Um, I haven't played Fire in the Lake yet. Obviously, it's not out, uh, but you were kind enough to provide us with the rules and, and cards, and, and I sort of just you know I read through it and and um, I, I can only imagine how it plays. But it seems to me that the um, the U.S. and the Arvin have a much more um, their 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 aims are are much more convergent and. Uh, and what I was reading about in in, um, in Fire in the Lake in the in the book itself made it sound like the U.S. and Arvin had much more of a uh, coalition and uh, Afghan government relationship where the U.S. would uh, provide the the GVN as they called it with. Um, with aid, and it would sort of just go towards, uh, you know, establishing and and reinforcing these relationships that were completely, in many ways, inimical to the to the U.S. Uh, war effort. Um, but without that aid, uh, they basically the U.S. wouldn't be able to influence anything at all. Uh, so they were stuck with kind of the, the best of a bad deal. Um, and so it, it's it's kind of um, it's an interesting constraint to be placed under that you have this this military uh, this military conflict where you focus uh, the the U.S. and the South Vietnamese because in that way they're very much uh, after the same goal and um, and the the, uh, the the target I can easily see how it could become a two player game and I'm going to be very interested in seeing where the 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 goals of the two sides diverge, uh, and I obviously can't do that without um, without playing the game, which I haven't done. Well, it seems to me what excites me about the the prospect of playing it is this idea of the the two sides, each with two players, and because this is all new to me, the the public discussion and negotiation as the cards come up, and you see one card, and then the card will follow it. Um, you know, laying that bear in front of all four parties. And then having them uh, sort of puzzle out who's going to do what, when, to whom, using right. which operations. Uh, right. That to me sounds very exciting. Um, yeah. And looking over the cards, I was also, I guess, a little surprised, partly because of the other games that are similar that I've been playing. They seem to put an emphasis on the cards representing uh, historical moments, like particular battles or initiatives or operations. Mm-hmm. I, I look over the cards in Fire in the Lake, Volko, and it looks like instead they are almost playing pieces. 
you know, there's a card for trucks. There's a card that's just called election. There's a mm-hmm. war photographer card. Right. And there are some specifics, like, uh, you know, like a specific typhoon that happened. There's a 330, 301st supply battalion card. There's a card for <laughs> Henry Cabot Lodge. You know, mm-hmm. so there's the, the cards. Operation Alboro, which you mentioned, is, mm-hmm. is a card. Yeah. Well, that that might be an, an exception, but to me, I look at them and they're all just pieces that could just mm-hmm. be in, uh, used, that could be represented with like a chit, for instance, right. rather than here's an event that happened, deal with it. Instead, it's here's a playing piece, how do you use it? Uh, well, that's kind of a coin series thing, isn't it? I mean, I, Andy and Abyss has that, um, the... Uh, the um Distant plane has that kind of thing too. You know, it's just, it's just like handheld rocket launch or uh, handheld uh, surface-to-air missiles, right? I mean, it's it, it's a it's in a it's a card, but it's it's uh, very much Tom like what you described. Um, do, do the other series have? Because there's also this idea, and and again, maybe this is in all the coin games that each faction has a kind of a a super badass game-breaking card. Um, is that unique to Fire in the Lake, or is that also in the other coin games? So, uh, yeah, there's three things, and I'd like to get, get to all of them. Um, the nature of the, the U.S. Arvin relationship, um, the cards as whether they're, you know, playing pieces or single moments or whatever, and then the, what you just mentioned, which we call pivotal events in Fire in the Lake. Mm-hmm. So, just in, uh, in, I guess in reverse order. So those, those, um, pivotal events, this is one card that in the, uh, two, two of the scenarios, um, not the short scenario, each of the four factions gets to start with its card, kind of like a home card in the Napoleonic Wars, if you will, something like that. And that card, when the conditions are right, that faction can play that event. So for the VC, it's the Tet Offensive, for example. Uh, and it actually cancels the current initiative and cancels the current event and gives a very uh, potent event to that faction who played it, but they can only do that once during the war. And that is a, a Mark Herman um, innovation that was when we first started talking about doing this as a coin series game, um, pretty much off the bat, he said, he, he, th- there are a couple things he wanted to add. Those uh, what, what came to be called pivotal event cards, so those are not in any of the other volumes. So that's what I was mentioning earlier not just twists to make sure that this is Vietnam and not just Colombia, but in a long, skinny form. Uh, this is that 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 Mark um, brings uh, a lot of innovations and creativity to to the table, as you might expect. And so that was that was a, a, a Mark's idea to bring in Tet Vietnamization linebacker to an Easter offensive in that way. Uh, and it's a, it's great because it just adds a whole nother. Now it's like, who has already expended their event? Is this the time to play it? Do I cancel this event or wait? Um, if I wait too late, I'll never get my big um, event in. So it's um, on top of everything that's already going on. <laughs> it, it, it adds uh, it adds quite a bit of interest. So it, it's almost happy. it's almost literally Volca, like everyone has an ace up their sleeve. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's like that, but you but one, <laughs> right? One time, right? So so that that's uh, that's unique to volume four. Uh, I think there's at least one future volume that will have something like this that 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 designer came up with independently, but again working in a different way, but some kind of home card. Uh, in terms of the events, so the the uh, CDGs were were my starting point 
too, but I, I wanted to get away from managing a hand of cards or managing a, a deck or reading a deck or anything like that. I wanted to really have the, the focus be on the map. And so we have this different system, as you've described, with a, a current card that is played by two of the factions, depending on initiative order and who's eligible, and one card showing in the future, and then everybody has to kind of deal with that combination. But in a similar way, the events really represent, here is something that has an impact, right? So if it's trucks, it's not that when that event occurs, suddenly there are trucks delivered. Before that, there were no trucks, and you'll never again have trucks. What it means is that over the course of the war, the fact that the the North Vietnamese um, received and deployed those trucks on the trail and were able to keep that system going had had some strategic impact and if they if they if the, that event is played because each event card just like in CDGs the event might occur the event might not occur at all it means that in this telling of the the story that toy that piece that thing had strategic impact and if you don't play, if the event doesn't get played, it doesn't come up or it isn't chosen or whatever, yeah, there are still trucks there, but they just don't have that strategic impact. And that's the way it is in CDGs, too. CDG have their toys and items, their one-time events, their all kinds of things. How we come up with that list, what, make, what makes the cut in terms of, of an event, um, that has come in, in each of the volumes after Andean Abyss, principally from my co-designer where when to the degree which we specialized um i said okay you you know what is your vision what do you want to show and i'm going to help you translate that into coin mechanics and part of that process with each of them including with mark was give me a list of event what events what events do you want to have be in the deck what should the events be and typically um and this was the case with mark it's a title of something like trucks and then some description of, of more or less what it should do. And then I would take that and I would um, rework that into how would this operate within the coin system since that was sort of been my expertise. So so that's also a great um, topic for discussion with, with, with Mark once you talk to him. It's sort of, you know, why trucks or is there an emphasis here on on on, on pieces or toys and, and why why should that be the card because um, he will have the wisdom on that almost I'd say I'd say um, 80 to 90 percent of the what the event cards are their title and what they're representing as opposed to specifically how the mechanics are written out are from Mark mm-hmm. uh, last so and then the last bit is on the um, the US and the Arvin working close together so I have to tell you a story on this each of the I love I love this idea of ambiguous relationships and, and playing out in games, where we have we, we share some interests, but we ultimately are against each other because only one of us can win. And so that's what I, it's my favorite aspect of watching people play in any of these games. And and as you pointed out, uh, Bruce, in Nandian Abyss, that's at the, the government and the AUC, and when do those players turn on each other? Is always what I'm watching when I when. You know, we run the experiment of, of having people play that game mm-hmm. uh, because they're they're clearly working together against the FARC in the beginning, but eventually they you know the, the government has to deal with the AUC or the AUC has to deal with the government. It's the government's getting too strong. Right. When does that happen? So that's which is a very historical situation. I mean, that's just yep. it's perfect. It just 
yeah, it, it's it's how it, how it how it played out to the agency's detriment in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and in uh, and so there's some similar ones in the Cuba game and in Afghanistan. For me, the most interesting relationship to watch the players I always watch the most closely is the coalition and the Afghan government and how close they are they cooperating. And there is a, a huge disparity among groups of players when they sit down. The degree to which the coalition and the government work together against the guerrillas or work at cross purposes and from the beginning seek mainly to undermine the other hmm. to achieve their own objectives. And it, 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 it's very interesting. And then it's, the games play out very differently. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you that it's, I predict it's going to be a similar thing with Fire in the Lake. And um, so I, I had initially Mark, Mark Herman and um, Rich Ferries and, and Peter Perla over, and I was on the communist side, and the and Mark was playing, I think, the Arvin, and the U.S. and the Arvin were cooperating very closely in smashing up um, the VC, and I was really surprised by that, that they were cooperating so closely, and I thought, well, maybe this, you know, this isn't working, um, but they started out, I think, with that idea that the U.S. and the Arvin, you know, cooperate against the uh, against the communists. Right. I do a lot of testing with my sons here at home. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they were those are my first line play testers. And so I ended up playing Andy Nabis frequently as a three player game because there are three of us, me and my two sons. Mm-hmm. And so we did the same thing with Fire in the Lake. And very often um, I took the communists and they took the US and the Arvin. And I will tell you that they, even though they were facing an entirely united communist threat, because I was controlling both the NBA and the VC, uh, they spent all their ingenuity and energy trying to undermine the other counterinsurgent. It was very U.S. versus... Now, they're, they're better players than I am, so it doesn't mean I was winning. <laughs> but they were doing everything they could to to stop the other. And I, and I started to explain that to Mark on the phone, and he didn't understand how that could be until I said that these are two brothers. Right. <laughs> so sibling rivalry is... is and uh, that sibling rivalry absolutely t- took over. So you have that latitude. The, the, the relationship, there's not really any recipe. How much do the, are the communists cooperating? How much are they threatening you? And I guarantee you, rational play would mean if the U.S. and the Arvin are succeeding, they have got to start thinking about having South Vietnam look the way they want South Vietnam to look, not the way their ally does. Mm-hmm. I have to ask Volko, uh, who won that game? Um... I think that was the the with my sons. Yeah. That particular game. Yeah. I think that was the that was the U.S., which okay. was the younger brother on that occasion. <laughs> so I send him our congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I will. So to point just just from because one of the things I've been talking about with um, with the designers of these Vietnam games is is what they really felt the different victory endpoints were and what they represented. Um, you know, I had one designer who basically felt that there, there well, a couple designers that felt that there was no, that any victory endpoint for the Arvin and the U.S. was basically an arbitrary game construct that didn't really exist and uh, it's sort of a very uh, deterministic uh, kind of thinking. You just, you, basically it's a game, so you have to have them, you have to have some way for them to win, but really they never do. Um, and I was just looking at you know in the rules here and and um, the uh, the number for the U.S. it's basically the total support plus the number of uh, 
troops um, and bases that they don't have in uh, South Vietnam. Is that, I, is that correct? Cause it's, it's yes. Well, there's actually, there's really three places, broadly put, that U.S. Um, pieces can go, troops and bases, uh, that those pieces can go. Uh, South Vietnam, uh, the available box, which represents really their back home, Right. Or available elsewhere in the world for other missions, NATO or whatever, and out of play. And the number of U.S. pieces that are out of play at the beginning, during the course of the game, at the end, varies quite a bit also. And the main way that U.S. pieces go out of play is becoming casualties in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. So this represents the U.S. is trying to go in, you know, it's, it's limited escalation. They're trying to just go in with the forces they need. Uh, to do the job, and then they would want them to come home again. And if they they can they can pacify South Vietnam successfully, but if they do that at massive costs and casualties, that's not a victory either. Right? right? They're 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 not. This is not total war. Mm-hmm. And and the the Arvin, on the other hand, when by uh, controlling population plus uh, having made a little bit of cash on the side. Right, because they're they need um, it's sort of representing the the victory of the um, of the southern elite, a uh, political elite, really, uh, because that you have to have patronage, right? Exactly right. So it's not just cash, but it's that whole network of taking that cash and other wherewithal and giving it to your friends, and thereby uh, cementing your political control of the country. And, and to just look at that as an expression of what you can read about in, in Fire in the Lake or many other um, books about how the U.S. Uh, mission in, in Vietnam and the southern regime are at odds over pacification. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it, it's, not, it's not that the people in the southern regime are stupid or stubborn or are evil and don't like villagers, and therefore, for any of those reasons, don't cooperate energetically with the U.S. effort to achieve what the U.S. called pacification, meaning getting the rural people on the side of the regime. It's that the regime has completely a different idea, based in centuries of history, of how to control this country. And having the villager believe that this clique in Saigon is on their side is not how it was done. Mm-hmm. And so we, now, of course, it's a game, so it's we make it vastly more simple than it really is, but we try to then boil that down to simple victory conditions, simple mechanics. Mm-hmm. The U.S. wants popular support for the regime, which in, in reality means rural because you start out with support in, in, in the cities by and large. So it's really the, that rural, getting that rural support for the regime mm-hmm. for a regime that doesn't really care <laughs> okay that's right. the situation we were in right uh, and, and making sure that at the in the at the end of the day the boys come home in one piece so that's that's what it boils down to and for the for the for the southern regime it's making sure your clique is controlling things through its patronage system mm-hmm. which has to be Funded absolutely, in part by aid coming from the U.S. So you're taking that aid in part not to fight the war, but to ensure your 
cliques control of the country, and then also being militarily strong enough, because the regime is a, it is largely a military regime. These are Arvin generals, after all. Mm-hmm. Uh, that when the U.S. does depart, because you know they will, mm-hmm. you are big enough to militarily hold off any military threat, principally the NVA and secondary. Mm-hmm. Uh, can we can we play this out? I'd love to hear your uh, express how you're expressing what the victory conditions would be uh, for the NVA and VC, like as far as mechanically and what that represents historically. Yes, absolutely. So the VC have the classic um, people's war surround the, uh, the the cities with the countryside, and they're attempting to light off a general uprising by working one hamlet at a time one sub-village at a time, uh, infiltrating them with political cadres, threatening them with military uh, and terror when necessary, so that that clique in Saigon, those neocolonialists propped up by the United States, are in fact losing their control of the country and becoming less and less political uh, viable until... That process is so well developed, that is to say that the countryside is so hostile to the Saigon regime that the cities can be overcome, can be overrun, as was attempted in the Tet Offensive unsuccessfully. And, 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 yeah. and to do that with the substantial uh, infrastructure, guerrilla infrastructure, um, so-called VC infrastructure from the U.S. point of view, uh, which is the political cadres, the supply caches, the training camps, the the, um, the ability to have that revolution be led forward by the southern cadre itself, and that's represent those two things. So, so that dual victory condition is represented in the game by uh, opposition in the of the population rather than support, which is what the U.S. is trying to pursue through pacification. Opposition to the regime by enough of the southern population plus enough VC bases representing that infrastructure. So bases plus opposition is the VC goal. And that's the same as, um, by the way, the FARC and the Columbia game and so forth. Mm-hmm. For, for the NBA, it, it's there. They, they, they would like to have successful insurgency and guerrilla operations and people's war going on. But at the end of the day, the way Hanoi... And this is really what they're building for. At the end of the day, the way Hanoi is going to unify the country is to exploit the weakening of the adversary through that guerrilla warfare, but come in with a conventional force, as they tried to do from 1965 on. So they're building up their own northern infrastructure, northern bases, and they can actually take over VC bases if the conditions are right. In other words, political and logistical infrastructure run by northerners, northern cadre, and military control, which has to be largely through conventional forces for the numbers, uh, military control of as much southern population as possible to set up for that final offensive to Saigon. So it's NBA control as opposed to counterinsurgent control plus NBA bases is the NBA victory. So it's very interesting then how you, you know, I can see now how fire the book Fire in the Lake sort of begat the game Fire in the Lake because, you know, what the book sort of describes as the kind of victory conditions that you're, that you've outlined is that the, the real counterinsurgency, 
uh, force in the book is the United States because they have this idea of a very uh, sort of the the idea of propagating this democratic ideal, whereas the political elite in South Vietnam, as described by the book, is very much about constructing some sort of uh, just control over the population uh, that doesn't necessarily reflect any ideological uh, bent. It's just their sort of apparatus of national uh, of of pulling the levers of power of South Vietnam. Um, and so, um, you know, the way that the game is d- describing this, you know, the U.S. actually defeats the VC uh, in terms of, you know, the VC become, doesn't becomes a, um, uh, a spent force, but then doesn't stick around long enough, and the NVA ends up defeating the Arvin. I think that's that's a fine summary. That's... So I think that uh, if the game play, truly plays out like that, then you really will have appropriately titled your game. Um, but uh, I'm, I am I mean, I've already got it ordered in uh, P500. So uh, when is it coming out, by the way? So right now, uh, the forecast is July. Uh, just, I think, two days ago, we completed um, proofing all the art. So it's going to press as we speak and based on the way it's gone with the previous volume so we're a little bit tiny bit ahead uh, of where we usually are so i think july is right now a good bet is it going to debut at any convention or anything like that that would make um if we hit that then i would say the the wbc the world board gaming championships in lancaster would be Mm -hmm. the debut and uh, which was the case for the for um, Afghanistan and Cuba last year, as mm-hmm. well as Indian this year before that, and so, um, so last year we had a, a, from my point of view, successful Indian Abyss tournament there. This year it's going to be a coin series tournament run by Joel Tamburo, mm-hmm. and by WBC rules we won't have Fire in the Lake in the tournament because it won't have been published long enough. Um, it. But it'll hopefully it'll be around. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Any thoughts, Tom Chick? How do you how do you how do you feel about all these these um, insurgents and and their their countering well, with? Uh, yeah, first of all, I feel that July is, is a little bit too far off. I'd like, I'd like to play this now uh, if that's an option. Um, no, I uh, Volko, how how would you uh, for someone who does know Labyrinth uh, but who hasn't played any of the Coin series? Uh, do you feel Fire in the Lake is a good one to jump into? Do you feel that a newbie like me should maybe get his feet wet in Indian Abyss first? Uh, or how, how do you feel this fits in with, with the other coin games for, for those of us who aren't acquainted with the series very well? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So we have built onto it. And so we have, uh, I would say, the most going on in Fire in the Lake compared to the other three volumes. Mm-hmm. So the pivotal cards, uh, event cards that we talked about is one of those aspects. Um, the Rather than having generic propaganda cards that punctuate each campaign, they're actually coups by specific Vietnamese leaders, so there's a little bit more to that. We have now troops fighting each other. That's a completely new element that I mentioned because the NBA has troops. We've also given the counterinsurgents guerrilla-like units, special forces, uh, which is new to the series. So, so there's 
just a, uh, just a smidge more complexity in Fire and the Lake than in the previous volumes with the presumption on our part that a lot of people playing Fire and the Lake, they're picking it up because they enjoyed one of the earlier volumes and so they're simply you know, jumping into the same system. Right. Uh, and in Abyss, because it was the first, is probably the, the, the cleanest in that regard. I think so anyway. Uh, and you get to ship drugs in it too. You do get to ship drugs, yeah, that's there. And and Cuba Libre Volume 2, which we haven't talked about much, but done by Jeff Grossman with me, um, has the advantage of just being more compact. Uh, it's, it's simpler in that it doesn't have um, lines of communication, which is kind of another um, newish kind of uh, mechanic in the series. The other games all have lines of communications, roads, and so, so forth. Um, Cuba Libre does does away with those. It doesn't doesn't need them. The map is small. Cuba is a, just a long, thin, one dimensional kind of uh, geographic problem. So so that it just makes it easier to kind of I think jump in. So if if there were concern about um, where to start, then Andy Nabis and Cuba Libre would be my recommendation. On the other hand. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing for some people it will be I don't really care about those topics. Yeah, I, yeah. I love Vietnam and I'm fascinated by the Vietnam conflict and I'm going to add to my Vietnam collection then of course Fire and the Lake. I mean it's funny to hear you say earlier in the podcast that you were wanting to do something in Africa you didn't quite know what because no one else had done that and you were shying away from Vietnam because there were so many Vietnam games. Uh, yeah. Just for me as a, as a player and I'm nowhere near as hardcore as Bruce but as a player with uh, – who loves little historical asides and stuff? Um, I, I, would, I love the idea that you're finally getting to Vietnam. And when you announced the series, I was like, "Oh, that's, those all sound awesome!" But I can't wait until he hurries up and does the Vietnam one. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I'm one of those easy guys who you know came up through Twilight Struggle and is glad you finally got around to this aspect of the Cold War. Uh, so yeah. Bruce, as for how I feel about this, uh, mm-hmm. I feel that it's about time, but that July is a little bit too long to have to wait. Hmm. Well, uh, I, I think uh, you know. I think that the, obviously the Vietnam subject is is great. Um, you said something. You, Tom reminded me that you said that you mentioned the word Africa, but then we never really heard any more about that. Um, is there a chance you'd do Angola? A- Angola is um, what I'd like to do most. In fact, I have a, about three hundred dollars worth of Angola books sitting on my floor right here. Oh wow! Uh, so um, you found three hundred dollars yeah. worth of Angola books. I could <laughs> oh, only, yeah. I, I could only find all, about a hundred dollars. <laughs> not all, unfortunately, not all. I want to do um, Port- you know, the fall of Portuguese Angola. Is yeah. the Subtitle. So sixties to mid seventies. So a sort of a prequel to the MMP Ragnar Angola game, which I think is a phenomenal design. Yeah, I have that. Um, it's really great. Uh, and, and and also an and interest a whole different way of doing two v two by the way that is just um, it's fascinating and fun um, and so no not all my books are on that period so there's more although more general um, Angola colonialism and also some subsequent just uh, for context but that that will be sometime in the future when I because that's when I think I will just take on myself. Um, yeah. Great. But that's that'll be when I run out of co-designers who who are coming up with fascinating ideas. Do you have Richard Kapuscinski's book, The uh, Another Day of Life? It's a short volume about his. Uh, he was a uh, correspondent in Luanda. 
I have. I don't even know if I have it. I have not read it. That's for sure. You should. You should check it out. That's my little recommend. And, and to any listener who uh, wants to read about Angola and wants to finish it in a in an afternoon and evening. There you go. That's my contribution to to yeah. the reading education of uh, of the listenership. That and Fire in the Lake. People should read Fire in the Lake. It was completely different. I thought it was going to be. Uh, hey, why didn't you people all throw in with Uncle Ho? But uh, <laughs> didn't turn out. Yeah. Didn't turn out that way. Uh, I think Francis Fitzgerald had a point of view, but it's uh, it's much more nuanced than that. I think. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, well, Volker, I want to say thank you for for taking so much time with us and talking about uh, about the game. Um, you know, we've I've talked to a number of different game designers about Vietnam games um, and uh, you know what their perspective is. You know, some some had very personal perspectives on you know having experienced Vietnam. Uh, others uh, had more of a sort of a historical philosophical perspective. What as we kind of transition to the end of the podcast, is there anything about the sort of Vietnam situation um, that was particular to you that informed your your um, uh, your design? I mean, I, I assume we're all we're all of an age that we wouldn't have served in Vietnam. Um, you had mentioned you were in graduate school, and you know when you started uh, when when the Nick Carps game came out, so um, it wouldn't have you know wouldn't have been. Uh, Eligible for the draft at the time that the uh, that the war broke out. How did what 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 about Vietnam is particular to you um, when you were thinking about it? Yeah, I um, talk about this a little bit in the um, interview in uh, the last issue of C three I from Ron McGowan. I was uh, yeah, I was in uh, in grade school during Vietnam, so I talked to my father mainly about it and trying to understand. Um, you know, I was I was sort of already interested in what well, what's our you know what's our plan here what's our strategy and this was mainly during the the Nixon period in terms of you know are we are we trying to are we going to you know win it or are we just trying to quit or and it's sort of something in between so that's that was my original memory of Vietnam was those conversations with my father and then by college the war is is already fascinating me and it, it's it's still in the in, you know fairly fairly recent times and already looking back on it it just seemed so um outlandish and bizarre in terms of what was going on there and how we were fighting and in some cases the incredible waste and the um uh unreal impact of 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 bureaucracy uh, and it just seemed sort of this whole big insane endeavor and then now looking back on it what grips me as I remember how I reacted to learning the history of Vietnam for the first time back then is um, how many echoes we have now in expeditionary counterinsurgencies that we've been that we've been engaged in and it was um it was interesting designing Fire in the Lake with Mark and saying, well, you know, in the Afghanistan game, we did it this way. Do you think this would fit here? Oh, yeah, that fits perfectly. We'll just use that. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the time of Vietnam, there was, I know, great frustration among the some of the, the folks fighting it that we had, we were, we had 
failed to learn the lessons of previous insurgencies and counterinsurgencies. Those lessons were there with the, the British and the French uh, experiences in, um, in Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. And we seem to have to learn this all over again as the U.S. there. And, okay, so we learned it. And then we come to Iraq, and I know people who served in Iraq, and they say the same thing. It's like we're, you know, it's like we're starting from the beginning again mm-hmm. and, and, and learning how to, how to do this. And the, the, the learning points are the same. Yeah. So, um, so now I look, it's strange, but I look back now on Vietnam and it doesn't seem so bizarre at all as it struck me when I was reading about it originally in the early 1980s as a student. Yeah. It well, just seems like it's kind of normal. That's how we do wars. Well, it's, uh, it's certainly, I think, interesting that it's being, it's, it's now a, a gameable topic, which I think at the time that, uh, Nick Carp's Vietnam came out, it was sort of shocking. Yeah. Uh, that somebody would do a game about Vietnam. And I think that now, uh, it's a little, uh, it's, it's, it's more of a, oh, there's a Vietnam game out. You gonna get it? Kind of thing. So. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I'm looking forward to getting it. I'm, I'm sure it'll be winging its way to me uh, as soon as uh, GMT prints it out. So thanks for coming. Uh, thanks for talking. Love your games. Uh, Tom, my vote is for Andy and Abyss if you're going to play something, but I know that you're just going to jump right into the uh, right into the fire in the lake. So yeah, what absolutely. am I going to do? Yeah. Right. I'm, I'm headed to Vietnam. Now that's Perfect. a big slogan. Jump into the lake. <laughs> <laughs> Water's fine. Come on yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thanks, guys. This is a blast. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. So that was Volker Runke, a designer of Fire in the Lake, as you heard there, coming out in July. Um... So not sure. I can wait. Yeah, I know. Want it now? I, I wish too. I wanted to hear more about uh, stuff like the the story about the game he played with his sons. I wanted to yes. hear more anecdotes like that uh, yeah. from playtesting and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and also something that we didn't talk about before. Uh, we went into the interview that I, I mentioned. I wanted to hear from you, Bruce. Uh, and now's as good a time as any to bring this up. Uh, because this is also something that I wished we'd had more time to talk with Volko about, and he didn't bring it up until near the end of the interview. Uh, but I loved hearing him talk about his personal reflections of, of Vietnam, of being in school, and, and how uh, it, he kept thinking of it uh, in terms of modeling uh, the conflict in Afghanistan and this idea of, he had for doing an Iraq game. Um, so what I want you to explain, Bruce, is why a series on Vietnam? You mentioned the four games and the one that specifically uh, inspired you to do a series here, but why Vietnam, basically? What, what is your response to that question? Hmm. Well, <clears throat> I think the reason for the for the Vietnam series, I, I, I like the idea of thematic, uh, of thematic projects like this with games, because I think games too often get looked at in terms of just what the box has in it, you know, these unboxings, people video unboxings, <laughs> uh, which is, you know, it's fine. I, I'm not, I'm not criticizing that in, you know, in and of itself, but I feel like too often, um, you know, games come out, people 
like them or don't like them, but don't really think about how the games relate to each other. And I think that theme, because theme is so important in board games, theme across games, and especially across a, a long timeline like uh, we have with the games that I'm discussing, uh, is, is worth investigating. And um, I thought it would be uh, interesting enough uh, as, as anything else to do Vietnam. Vietnam, I, I've played board games for a long time, and at the time that I really started picking up board war games, which is many decades ago now, um, they were really all about you know, World War II or um, or or NATO. Those are the basically the two mm-hmm. the two choices you had. Um, I mean, there were games about other things, obviously, but it, those are the two big genres. And everybody was really into World War II. And, and the, and the <clears throat> at that time, I mean, World War II had only been over for you know forty years. So people who had fought in the war might only be you know sixties in their sixties or seventies, and they had a lot of um, uh, you know, the, some of the, in the some of the early board games actually were endorsed uh, by people who had made prominent contributions to the war. Mm-hmm. You know, the Midway board game uh, had a blurb from the guy that uh, that led the the decisive dive bomber attack on the Japanese, and it you know, Seaway uh, Wade McCluskey. Um, but uh, you know, you to have a discussion about war games. Uh, really meant you were discussing World War II. Um, and Vietnam was not really a topic. Uh, and um, that's because the at the time that I was you know, first picked up board games, um, I mean, the war had only been over for a few years. I, I still remember as a kid uh, picking up the, the newspaper used to come uh, to the front door, you know, in the old days where you would open the door and you had a doormat and there was a newspaper on it in the morning. And I remember picking up the... the, um, the uh, Newspaper and there was a giant headline on it and it said uh, South Vietnam surrenders. It was like the whole half page. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember looking at it and thinking, "Huh, I wonder whose team we were on." <laughs> what does that have to do with me? Yeah, did, does that mean we won or we lost? Yeah, exactly. Right. That's that's that was what was you know that was what was important to me. You know, as a, as a very you know small child opening the. Uh, opening the door, getting the daily newspaper. That's uh, great that you mentioned that, Bruce, because one of my only, I don't remember specifically stuff like that, but one of my only uh, memories of Vietnam, and you and I are both a little too young for it to really have registered ever, right. uh, but one of my memories is at one point being disabused to the notion that America had won every single war. Like growing up and hearing that at one point and thinking, oh, that's pretty cool. I live in a country where we won every single war. And then a few years later, someone saying, no, we lost Vietnam. Uh, And thinking, wait wait a minute, I thought we won every single war. So it's kind of like you looking at that headline and thinking, wait, which side are we on? Well, Kevin Klein would argue it was a tie. Uh, Is that a Fish Called Wanda reference? Yeah. Very good. Uh, you, real quick, I want to get back to your uh, recollections, but you made another reference on the podcast that uh, I hope Volko heard it because I thought it was kind of hilarious, even though I don't understand sports. Mm-hmm. You said something about uh, stratomatic baseball, but with guns. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, I, I wanted to, don't think that went unnoticed, your, your mm-hmm. cute little sports slash gaming yeah. reference, yeah. by the yeah, way. So. Um, well, I'm glad you picked that up. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure that, uh, you know, as a big cricket fan, you... you you took that to heart. Uh, so, uh, yeah, the, the thing that I find interesting about um, about certain games about Vietnam, and, and specifically Nick Carp's game about Vietnam, and, and, and Volko mentioned, mentioned it on the podcast, and, and um, I, I thought it was uh, 
just uh, really perceptive is that what Nick did was that he made a uh, a game in which you were you were you were ham- you were hamstrung by the historical realities, but not by history, which is unusual in a Vietnam game. Right. Um, and and what specifically uh, Volkow meant by that was that you know <clears throat> the, the sort of build up in Vietnam, you know, it's this very um, there's this very um, sort of progressive. American uh, commitment to the war that starts, you know, first this, you know, the 16,000 advisors, I think it was in 61, and then uh, the, the decision to ramp up in 64, and then uh, uh, the, the landing in, in uh, the troops uh, at Da Nang, uh, the Marines that really signaled the, you know, the first real, you know, heavy combat troop commitment, and then, you know, Westmoreland asking for more troops. There's this, <clears throat> there's a, there's sort of this, uh, it's like a play that develops uh, that adds more, you know, the, the sort of the, the tempo builds, and, and um, but it's, it's very much a set historical understanding. And what Nick Carp did was he said, well, okay, that's fine, but what if America just said, we're just dropping the whole freaking U.S. Marine Corps in Vietnam right now, mm-hmm. um, which ignores some other, uh, you know, historical sort of constraints, but, I, you know, it's not completely unreasonable. Um and you can go from there. And, and I, uh, there, I, I, I do want to tell the story because um, I want to uh, I want to make as many people as possible hear it. But um, I do talk about it on the podcast with Nick that uh, I, I played the game um, Vietnam very briefly in uh, a period of time when I was playing a lot of games by postal mail. And if you can imagine that game, it, it doesn't really lend itself to postal mail play. I think it would probably take about 60 or 70 years to uh, play the game to th- all the way to the end, uh, just exchanging letters. Um, but we had done it so that there was a, um, uh, th- there are four core um, divisions in Vietnam. There's uh, what they call I Corps, so first Corps, second Corps, third Corps, fourth Corps. And um, I was not a Corps commander. We had four Corps commanders, and then I was the overall U.S. commander. And so it was my job. I didn't move any of the actual troops, but the four core commanders had to had to uh, write to me and <laughs> sort of they had to they had to make uh, they had to make their pitch. Right? It was their pitch. You know, I want the you know I want the the 23rd American Division. You know, because I think I can use it to you know whatever do whatever pacify the Delta. And uh, the thing that the the mechanism that Nick's game has is that. Uh, you can you can put as many troops as you want into um, into Vietnam, but the more you put in, the more you start draining American support from you know from the get go. So you know some players will uh, you know sort of slowly ramp up, try to try to uh, upgrade the Vietnamese, the South Vietnamese forces, and um, um, you, but you don't have to do it that way. And because all these people had sent me such uh, you know persuasive letters, you know people would type up all these things. Oh, this is my plan, whatever. And I thought, wow, you know, that guy's got to make a good point, and that guy makes a really good point too. And then I thought, oh, okay, well, so to, I sent, you know, at some point there was a deadline, and the the you had to send your um, commitment to the game master. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I sat down and I said, okay, we'll give this guy this guy and this guy this, and, this. and it, it, it was basically the the equivalent of dropping the entire U.S. Army in Vietnam. <laughs> and uh, and everybody, you know, all the um, 
all the core commanders wrote back and they were like, holy cow, I didn't expect you to give me everything. Uh, and then I realized at that point that, uh, oh, you know, they probably were just making, uh, you know, ma- making really strong, uh, uh, pitches for this stuff, but they were only really expecting about half of what they asked for. Um, so the game started off, uh, on, on that foot. Uh, but that was possible, you know, in Nick's game, that was possible. And, um, so I, I was really interested in, in the way that designers, um, looked at what was what had happened during the war because there were all these these things in, a, in a, you know in an eastern front game you know what are you going to do you've got you know the germans had this many divisions and you know they frankly really didn't get many reinforcements um the uh the russians had this many divisions they got a ton of reinforcements and it's it's all just you know you line your counters up and next to each other and then they fight right i mean it's it's, it's sort of a classic war game well, and partly is that there are no political stakes. I mean, everybody is all in. It's total right, war. Exactly. Everybody's investing everything they've got, and there's nothing else they can give. Uh, yeah. Right, exactly. And then, and and in, in Vietnam, there's this whole political component where you know the the all the players are not necessarily um, you know the 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 North Vietnamese side is very dependent on uh, you know for its resources on its uh, sponsors. Uh, the South Vietnamese are also dependent uh, on the U.S. You know, the idea of clients. So uh, I just wanted to see how people um, how people approached those things and what they really saw. Because I also think that you know, at the time that I started playing war games, Vietnam was kind of a dirty topic. Right. Um, you know, people. I don't think the country had really gotten come to terms with what had happened. Um, you know, people were still coming back from the from that theater. Uh, the people who were, had served in the army had served in Vietnam, um, served in the Marines had served in Vietnam, the Navy, and um, <clears throat> it was really in the Air Force. I guess I don't know why I feel I need to check off the name check everybody, but uh, <laughs> don't forget the Navy. The Navy. <laughs> yeah, I got them. Yeah. So um, you know, it, it was it was an interesting uh, thing to see. War games develop in in the post Vietnam period, and I still remember there was a John Tiller game. Um, I, I I wish I remember the name, but it'll come to me. It was a squad battles game um, that came out, and it was a Vietnam tactical game. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that John Tiller had uh, done was that he had made all fictitious names for all the um, for all the unit personalities. And uh, you know that's not something you would ever do with uh, with a, uh, a World War II game. I mean, because everybody, all the you know big major players are dead. Um, but uh, there was still this sort of this you know element of respect that uh, he he was making a game out of this conflict, but he still had felt that there was there was some level of uh, you know things that he couldn't do. And so <clears throat> it's been interesting to me to see as sort of we've gone further from Vietnam as the hobby has sort of felt more and more comfortable depicting the conflict. Um, when Nick Karp's game came out, it was really a big deal. Uh, I, I think, I mean, a big deal among the, you know, five people who played uh, <laughs> complex board war games about Vietnam. But it was, it was, you know, it was a, it was a commercial product that was produced. And I think there was a lot of, in the hobby um, press uh, sort of, controversy about it um you know how can you uh sort of make a game about vietnam right now um and it and it was i think it was partially helped by the fact that it was so complex that it felt like 
Nick was really it wasn't just like a, you know Vietnam risk. Um, but uh, but we've certainly gone. I mean, it's now 30 years since since Nick's game has been released, and we have a lot of new games um, on the topic, and they're very diverse. And I was just interested in how how people go about approaching Vietnam now that it's uh, 2014 and not 1984 or 1974. You know, how much of a factor is it? Uh, uh, Volko mentioned in working with Mark. Mm-hmm. Uh, how as they're discussing how to model Vietnam and how it's not just a World War II conventional forces clashing uh, mm-hmm. situation, how in talking about it, every now and then he would say, well, how about the way we did it in a distant plane? Oh, yeah, that'll work in the Vietnam game. Uh, right. How much of it for you, because this is a big part of it for me, for my mm-hmm. own interest. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I gr- having grown up during the Cold War, naturally it's a topic of fascination for me. But also recently, uh, the situations with Iraq and Afghanistan, I think, have made Vietnam uh, relevant in a new way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it certainly rekindled my interest in looking at how we, we model and think about Vietnam as an experience, as a narrative, uh, as a, a model of warfare. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so Iraq and Afghanistan have certainly made it. I mean, we're definitely haunted by Vietnam as a country, mm-hmm. but I think it's newly relevant after Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, do, do you see that as anything? You didn't mention that previously. Do you see that as anything um, that has anything to do with your interest? Well, I, you know, I think that to be honest with you, that's probably less the case because of the fact that I'm not, I am sort of a person who is interested in the past for its own sake. Um, And I, you know, things may be relevant now that makes them even more interesting, but you know, I don't have any problem that this is interesting um, just because of the recent, uh, you know, Ukrainian uh, events. Uh, Somebody was talking, I was reading the I can't remember. It must have been New York Times. Uh, somebody was saying, you know, when when people um, were asking some author who had re- recently written um, a, a history of the Crimean War, why the heck would you ever want to do that? Well, you know, now it, now you know. You know, he guess he wasn't so <laughs> stupid, right? And I'm thinking, what? Uh, why would you not want to write a history of the Crimean War? I think it's fascinating. I mean, don't don't get on some guy for writing a history of the Crimean War and then only believe that he was somehow you know justified ex post facto because now this U- this Ukrainian crisis happened, right? Well, it means right. that it means that that war is now trending, Bruce. Right? That's right. It's <laughs> trending. <laughs> Hashtag Crimea. Yeah. So 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 I guess from my perspective. Um, I'm not so interested in the fact that I mean I'm interested in in, in Afghanistan and Iraq certainly for their own sakes uh, okay. and I I'm not saying that they're not relevant or interesting to me I'm just saying that um, I'm somebody who really does feel um, I, I kind of feel the same way about science uh, just because you know some somebody's uh, studying something that uh, might not have direct medical application doesn't mean that that particular you know line of inquiry is is invalid or not interesting and i think the same thing about history uh, i think that you have to look at history uh in the way that uh you know history happened and it's part of our general collective uh past and uh knowing more about it is good i think in regardless of 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 how relevant it happens to be to you know whether my steak costs uh you know 9.95 a pound or something is that what state goes for these days? I have no idea. My, 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 wife, my wife takes care of that. Uh, Volko mentioned when he was talking about his own experience of the war and his reflections on it and uh, what, 
how uh, he came to sort of think about it. Uh, he used the phrase outlandish and bizarre. Uh, and I love that he put it that way because um, in trying to be analytical about Vietnam, mm-hmm. it's easy to think about things like, you know, the, the limitations on technology mm-hmm. and how we, even though we're a democracy and we acknowledge real politic, uh, we, we, we try to operate by the rules of law. Um, but but there there is there's something inherently outlandish and bizarre to me about what happened in Vietnam and how it happened and how it ended up, um, and in in relating it to specifically Iraq, I can't help but compare the two and, and think also when when Volko says outlandish and bizarre, that immediately sets off in my head yeah Iraq outlandish and bizarre, um, and and there's a sense too of you know you know. When you talk about modeling different wars, World War II is a very definite, discrete, self-contained, easily understood narrative. And, uh, you know, our role in World War II is something that we should be proud of and we should remember and we should highlight. Uh, and that, sure, yeah, let's, let's safely model that and re-experience it and examine the, the what-ifs. And it, it makes sense. You know, World War II totally makes sense. Everybody can understand that. A school child. You explained World War II to a school child, and yeah, he could totally wrap his head around right. that. Um, right. But I, as someone who who is fascinated by the absurdity of politics and and and, and, and global relationships, um, I just I just can't get Vietnam out of my head, and it just reminds me of other things like Iraq. Uh, so so kind of the and I don't mean this to diminish it, but the black comedy of Vietnam is is absolutely fascinating to me. Hmm. Um, well, that's probably very much influenced also by your your vi- your film experience of the war. Well, the, you know, the, I mean, I I don't know if that was a joke. If so, well played. But in all seriousness, a lot of filmmakers that's how they approach it. Is mm-hmm. you know certainly uh, Apocalypse Now, uh, certainly Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket. Mm-hmm. There's this sense that Vietnam was a black comedy. Uh, you know, how can you possibly represent this in the way that you represented World War II in movies? Yeah. Um, and and so similarly. Part of my career is I think of the video games and board games as Mm -hmm. entertainment in the same way Mm -hmm. as I think of movies. So how do – World War II, it's easy to make sense of it. It's easy to model it. These chits move here. Those chits move there. This one has this combat strength. That one has that combat strength. So therefore, this one won. How do you deal with the outlandishness and the bizarrity Mm. (laughs) of, of, as Volko Runke describes it, of Vietnam? Uh, and so that's kind of my fascination uh, with with modeling Vietnam as a game. Uh, by the way, and I don't want to veer too far into this, but other types of games have tried to do like video games. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a, there's a Battlefield series that Electronic Arts does, and they did a Battlefield Vietnam, and they the best they could do with it was try to appreciate the way that movies have represented the absurdity of it by having you when you fly your helicopter around, you mm-hmm. have uh, musical selections from the '60s, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they just create that that uh, okay. cognitive dissonance of some crazy 60s music and you are shooting rockets into troops and stuff. And it's very yeah. cinematic. Um, right. But they also play with the asymmetry a little bit, um, yeah. which doesn't work so well in a shooter, but it's something you can play with a lot in board games. Yeah. Uh, and we see, you know, Volko did, a, Volko did a wonderful job of that with Labyrinth. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Uh, so at any rate, that's that's part of what I sort of am fascinated with, and how are you going to make a Vietnam War yeah. game? Well, I, I, I want to add to that. I really want to say that 
in in my investigation of the of Vietnam, I've you know I got. I, first of all, I don't think you can really understand the American involvement in Vietnam without understanding the French involvement in Vietnam. Uh, and uh, there are some really good books about. I think the the post uh, the the post war uh, situation in Indochina. Um, there's a great book I got, Embers of War, um, which is uh, sort of describes the. Um, Kind of Ho Chi Minh's kind of arc in the uh, in the Vietnamese nationalism and um, the uh, sort of post-war Indo-Chinese reckoning, as it were. Um, but um, as I got into that, and there's also there's a game uh, about that called Tonkin uh, from Legion War Games that uh, I at some point I think I'm going to uh, try to put a podcast together about because it's all it's, things are fascinating. I'm really fascinated by the. Um, the post-war decolonialization, and I think that Vietnam is sort of Act Two of post-war decolonialization, and the 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 um, the fact that it's seen as this crazy, bizarre, outlandish war is a very to me I feel is a very American perspective because if you look at what happened all across, uh, for example, Africa. Um, in the 60s, uh, and the the, uh, the British had their own uh, counterinsurgency, which was actually very successful in Malaya, uh, called the Malayan Emergency. I do mention that a couple times um, in the various podcasts. But um, these were all kind of crazy um, involvements where, I mean, the, the, the mercenary, the Congo Wars, um, talk about talk about bizarre and, and outlandish. Um, the Angolan conflict, which stretched on, you know, to the end of the Cold War, um, and uh, and Volko mentions um, mm-hmm. that is, I mean, the, the the Cubans like airlifting people into Angola <laughs> and fighting the South Africans. I mean, it's that's the, I mean, so that's that's more outlandish to me than anything. Um, and and the and the way that these conflicts played out and the types of combat that went on. Um, the uh, the there's a great book about what happened as the Portuguese fled Angola, um, and just the I mean it, it rivals anything that uh, that happened in 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 Saigon, um, it, in a different way obviously. But uh, I mean there the and the the French the Algerian War. I mean there's a lot of bizarre outlandish conflict that happened after World War II, and it also almost makes it almost makes World War II seem like a little bit. Of an anomaly. I mean, that's I'm taking it a little far, but um, this idea of of asymmetric uh, counterinsurgency or um, non traditional combat uh, that was that was sort of the rule. Um, and the the NATO and the Warsaw Pact, you know, standing there facing off against each other but never shooting any guns really, um, seemed to sort of preserve the idea of conventional warfare. While all over the world, people were fighting with you know. Uh, you know, homegrown South African armored cars in in uh, in Namibia. So, um, so I, I feel like Vietnam is part of this wider post World War II decolonialization uh, narrative that um, that I think can fit very interestingly into discussion of how to model conflict. And I, that's clearly what, Vol- I mean, uh, Volko, Runke, and Mark Herman are, I think, both work as, as, as defense analysts. Um, and uh, they have been thinking about this kind of stuff for a long time. Mm-hmm. 
So what are uh, specifically of the things that, that Volko talked about, about what he's doing in Fire in the Lake? Mm-hmm. Uh, what were some of the things that really caught your attention and why? Well, I, I, the thing that caught my attention, I, mean, I really, I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by the idea of a four-player um, yeah. game because I, from everything that I've read about the, the conflict, that's that just this doesn't seem to be, you know, that the NLF really were taking the orders from Hanoi. Um, they were, that, I mean, the the um, the internal sort of uh, North Vietnamese communist hierarchy politics weren't so much of a consideration uh, in the way that the South Vietnamese uh, constant coups and, and struggle for, for power were. Uh, so making the NBA and the NLF have different objectives, I'm, I'm going to be very Are interested to see Are you calling it the NLF? Is that, that's the, uh, another, is that the technical term for the Viet Cong? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. NLF National is Liberation be- Front? Yeah. Oh, good yeah, Lord. Don't sorry. call him that. <laughs> ah, whatever. VC, fine. Uh, I, I, sorry, I've, I've been reading so many books. I just did, did their NLF uh, in, in my mind. But, yeah, that's so for readers, uh, listeners who are confused, the VC. So having the VC and the, and the North Vietnamese Army have different uh, objectives is very... It's interesting, and and uh, well, I do think I, I think this came through in the interview. You and I, I think, both were very skeptical of that, and were suspicious that it was only because this um, coin series is 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 a four player engine, right. basically. And that, that I think it was our thinking going in is, well, he had to do it because it's a four player yeah. engine, and right, it's right, what he's right. been doing in the other games. So yeah. I think that was the the reservation that that you and I both had, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was, and and I, I think that it's fine. So the thing that I also don't want to don't want to be seen as doing is thinking that you know you have to be some sort of um, uh, you know slavish adherent to you know to, to modeling. That's what I meant by the uh, by the stratomatic baseball thing, right. right? That everything plays out the same way. You know, it's like the 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 the, the pleasure in stratomatic baseball is watching something develop that you kind of know developed. Uh, you know, watching some slugger hit his 50th home run um kind of hard coding in the expected yeah yeah. expected values yes and you just kind of watch them play out it's a sort of a process game um and i don't think that that's necessary i mean there's nothing wrong with that that's a certain type of of game um but for a board game that is competitive, that's kind of difficult to do because then you're sort of just programming in who's going to win. So I don't think that you need to hard code in who's going to win or hard code in historical events. Um, But I feel that the the parameters of the conflict sort of define for you as a game designer where where the limits are. Mm -hmm. And to to sort of take that and make a four-player game Simply because it's a four-player game, and 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 then just trying to justify. Um, I, I have to say, I haven't played the game yet. So if the two sides end up, um, the NLF, the, the VC and the NBA end up, you know, cooperating but having different um, victory conditions, and 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 it doesn't make them, it doesn't put them at odds the whole game. Because that I think that would be that would be very satisfying, but it, it may work fine. So we'll have to see what how the game plays out. I think that the the tension between the U.S. and the South Vietnamese will be much more um, 
sort of consistent with history. And he does he does explain too, and we can sort of see this in the rules, although it makes me wonder if anything is being compromised from the design. But he did say that it could be played as a two player game mm-hmm. or even a three player game. Right. Where one player plays uh both the uh the, the VC and the NVA and then another player plays the Arvin and another player plays the US. So yeah. it does seem like there are options there. Yeah. Three Rather. player I think would be the most most interesting. That's I, kind of what I was thinking too. Although he did sell me Bruce on this idea as the NVA being a unique selling point for how he modeled right. a conventional force with also a guerrilla presence. Uh, right. Like when he was explaining that, I was like, oh, I want to play the NVA when, mm-hmm. when I get this to the table. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I, I want to bring out, so you, you mentioned uh, when you were talking about uh, Vietnam games and how people think of games just as an unboxing and this is what's in the box mm-hmm. and how you wish we would think more out of the box. Uh, as he was nice. talking, uh, it reminded me of a, of, a, of a little game that I also haven't played, but I'm dying to, but mm-hmm. none of my friends, all my freaking stupid friends are too casual to play something like this. Mm-hmm. There's a great game, I say great, there's a game I'm eager to play from Victory Point Games called uh, Cuba, A Splendid Little War. And it's it's about the Cuban War of Independence from Spain in 1890 uh, that the U.S. eventually intervened in, um, and and it 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 plays a bit. It, it sounds it seems a bit like a kind of Vietnam War game where you've got an insurgent force, you've mm-hmm. got uh, the Spanish Empire controlling Cuba, and then the Spanish rebels. And what happens though is as you're playing, a little track keeps moving up, and it's inevitable. Um, and this track represents when the U.S. is going to is going to arrive. Mm-hmm. You know, when the U.S. Mm-hmm. is going to intervene in this okay. little, this splendid little war. Um, and and what they do is instead of having three players, it's very much a two player game. Is if you're playing the Spanish Empire, you're just trying to hold on as long as you can. Okay. And as long as if the turn track goes all the way up without the U.S. getting involved, then you've basically won as long as you hold your cities. It's a little time challenge there. But what you're doing as the rebels is you're, you're, if you can't take those cities, what you want to do, that's your major victory condition, is get the U.S. involved, in which case you then are playing the U.S. and the rebels. And if you can then take the cities, you sort of achieve a secondary victory condition. Hmm. You know, the best scenario is if you achieve Cuban independence without getting the U.S. involved. The okay. next best scenario is if you get the U.S. involved and then you kick Spain out. No. Um, okay. and, and so what happens is that there there can be a sort of a mid, usually late game shift where suddenly you're playing the U.S. and you've got these super powerful units, you've got a huge naval presence, you shuffle new cards into the deck. Hmm. Um, uh, so, so I, and, and what they do to create insurgency, this idea of insurgent forces, is you have conventional forces you're moving around. The Cuban rebels are weaker. The Spanish uh, forces are stronger. But if Spain wants to attack a Cuban uh, rebel chit, they basically have to roll a D6, and on a 6, the attack goes through. On a 1 through 5, they can't find them. <laughs> Which, it just seems like a really simplistic uh, way to model the sort sure. of hit and sure. fade tactics of guerrillas. Uh, yeah. So it, it, it's very simple. It's two-player only. It looks like it would play in less than an hour. Uh, I'm fascinated by this little, tiny, almost mm. intimate design of that kind of insurgent warfare. Uh, well, that sounds great. I'll fly uh, to, to uh, L.A. and we'll play. Absolutely. You're one of, see, Bruce, one of the real atrocities here. Uh, listen to me. Uh, what, <laughs> 
Oh, I it it it's just it's really a, a shame that you don't live in L.A. because you're one of the few people I know who would actually play this little thing with me. Uh, I love to play it. Yeah, um, but it, you, with the thing that you just said, and I just want to pick up on that about the, the rolling the die and and um and having the unit, uh, you know, you can't find them. Right. That is the cl- that's the classic dilemma of how do you do a Vietnam game yeah. with the with the VC and. You know, Nick Carp did it in one way where you have a, uh, you know, the the units themselves are unrevealed. So you have, you know, just a, a, a star. Mm-hmm. And on the other side, you can, um, you know, it can, it can be an actual unit or it can just be a political cadre, um, at which point it kind of just goes away. Um, but... Um, but you really need a two-player game for that, and it can be very... The, that kind of sort of hidden unit thing... It is a little problematic. Yeah. Um, so it, trying to, you know, then there's there's even worse where, you know, plotted movement like you have with, you know, where you, you're writing stuff down on a sheet of paper and it's not actually on the map. I think it's very clumsy. Flip uh, it over. See, I've got a guy here. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> so so that kind of stuff. But, you know, but how do you do it? And and, and it's, uh, um, it's, it's a difficult problem and uh, people solve it different ways. There's a, uh, the, you know, the, I talk about how the, um, in Hearts and Minds, you can uh, you spend you basically can evade um, the all the time um, so you can you have this huge uh, uh, allied kind of effort and then they move into a province and try to attack and the the uh, North Vietnamese just vanish and you spent uh, well I guess that you get the resource points back I think but um, but you've basically organized all these forces and there's there's no there's no payoff mm-hmm. so. Um, so there are all these difficult design problems in, in a game about Vietnam, um, and uh, I'm interested uh, to see how the, I think Volko's uh, where he said that you know the different types of operations that you do in a, in a coin series game are, are truly um, he's right they're like the the operations that uh, Nick Carp developed for Vietnam you know how you have the um, the clear and secure and the search and destroy and security mission where you just drive up and down roads and keep yeah. the roads clear. And, that, that's um, one of the things that's fascinating to me reading the rules is how each of the four factions has different actions that they yeah. can do and right. none of those actions, I mean mechanically they might resemble each other, right. but none of the actions overlap. You know? Right, and that's a, that's a very that's a very coin series. I mean, I think coin yeah. series is is really a well done uh, system. I mean, I think I really I really feel I know that you're never going to play it, so this is going to fall into fears. But Andy and Abyss is just such a great game um, because uh, because even though it's about Colombia and not so many people are interested in that conflict, mm-hmm. um, the relationship of the sides to each other is right. is really fascinating. I mean, you have the government, and then you have this this non government. But they're sort of allied with the government, but they have their other their own uh, goals. And then you have the communists, and then you have just these guys that just want to sell drugs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and and they you know they're just kind of there in the jungle. Um, and it's it, talk about asymmetry, right? I mean, it's 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 one thing to have an asymmetric game where you have one side doing one thing and another side doing something else. It's really I think an achievement to have an asymmetric game where you basically have four sides that are doing all sorts of different things. And I think that. Andy and Abyss is the one that really does that the, the most uniquely, mm-hmm. um, and it, part of it is the situation. I, and, and saying that, I haven't really, I haven't played Cuba Libre. Um, I have it. It's actually, it's kind of embarrassing. It's still in the shrink wrap. Um, Do you have Distant I, Plane? Because that's the one that really yeah, interests know. me. Yeah, I have. I have Distant Plane, and uh, we've been playing it on the uh, on the forum. Uh, but uh, we've had sort of a. Um, it, it's 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 difficult to. Um, to keep that game going, um, 
it's 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 a game that when you sit down to do your move, you really have to sit down and do your move. And so, therefore, if it, some time passes, and I've been more guilty, I think, than anybody else, just because of the amount of time that I've had, uh, when it, to just getting some free time and making your move is for me is not really possible. I have to sit down, figure out what everybody's done, um, refresh my memory. I've taken it, keeping notes on the side, and it's still the game moves pretty slowly. But uh, I, I I think a distant plane is a is an excellent game. Um, but uh, I'm really interested to see how Vietnam works out. Uh, the the idea of um, overlapping but identical interests, uh, but not identical interests, right. overlapping interests right. that aren't identical, yep. uh, yeah. and that that whole how he's using that, and that's a trademark of the coin series. Yeah. Uh, reminded me of, and again, I feel a little silly. I would never have brought this up to Volco mm-hmm. because it sounds a little frivolous. Mm-hmm. Uh, reminds me a lot of another game I've been playing a lot lately, which. Might be one of my, I might say this is my my current favorite board game. This would be Mm -hmm. my Desert Island board game. Yeah. Uh, There's a game that Martin Wallace made called A Study in Emerald. Yeah. um, Where the, 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 and it's, you know, it's an alternate history and it involves Sherlock Holmes and Mm H.P. Lovecraft mythology and it sounds very frivolous, but uh, Martin Wallace made it originally from a design about uh, anarchists during the Industrial Revolution. And it was mm-hmm. very uh, tastefully historical, uh, to mm-hmm. where you couldn't really turn your nose up it. But then he added in this uh, horror and uh, detective fiction stuff, and um, and it, it, it seems a little silly. But one of the cool things they do in Steady and Emerald is that the players are split into two factions. Mm-hmm. And the factions have that same idea of overlapping but not identical interests because only one of them can win. Uh, and in talking about uh, both Indian Abyss and Fire in the Lake, the relationships between the sides who are supposedly on the same side, the right. factions on the same side, but only one of them can win, just reminded me a lot of one of my favorite things about Study in Emerald, which is that dynamic, is mm-hmm. that even though... You and me, it turns out we're on the same faction, so we have a lot of the same goals, but only one of us can win. Mm-hmm. That that you that adds a unique kind of gameplay where we can help each other, but only to a certain point because there's going to be a point in time where only one of the other of us right is gonna is gonna be able yep. to pull ahead, and, and I've mm-hmm. got to step on you, yeah. even though we were helping each other to get ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I really like that dynamic. Yeah. And to me, that's very new. You know, that's something right. I hadn't really encountered before studying right. Emerald. Yeah. But that's something that the Coin series has been doing since Indian Abyss, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah they've, they've 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 got that down. I mean, it's it's so uh, it's so well developed. Uh, and o- over each game, I think they've they've done a good job. Um, with it. I don't know how Kuba Libre works out. I actually have to sit down with that and, and look at it because I didn't realize that you could make have four factions in Kuba Libre. They've um, also uh, and it, and this makes me wish that I played one of them uh when when volko talked about doing a cdg but getting it out of a hand of cards yes you know all the games i've played studying emerald certainly labyrinth it's you know that those cards that you're sitting on you don't want Mm -hmm. anyone else to see that to me is a hallmark of those kind of games but what he's done with the coin series is removed that and i think he even specifically said he wanted it to be about the map you know, yep. you're looking at the map, and you're not, mm-hmm. you know, hunkered over your hand of cards, thinking, right. oh, which one am I going to play? Yeah. Because it's all right there on, on the map. Uh, and I it love works that. so well. Yeah, you do. Everybody, you, you know, everybody sees the card, and then everybody yep. starts thinking about what they're going to do with that card on that particular map. 
and talking position. about it in a different way too. Yep. I mean, it's a different yeah. way of interacting over the cards. Right. As we know, this is coming up. You do this, I'll do that. Don't do this, mm-hmm. or I won't do that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, I love, and this is new to Fire in the Lake. Uh, I love those idea of pivotal events. Yes. You know, this, yes. it sort of gives you like a mini goal or kind of like a halfway point right. victory condition, or like right. it sounded more like they were kind of interrupts almost. Mm-hmm. Um, Ooh, that's that's a collectible card game. Yeah, sorry, I went I went a little yeah. magic of the gap. Yeah, okay, that's all right. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, yeah, I like the sound of those. I like that he's introducing those. Yeah, um, yeah I'm I'm fascinated by that. I think that the this is this is really an amazing time to be playing board games. I, I there's no other way to put it. You know, people. I just wanted to emphasize how um, how much I love the fact that uh, you know because when I was when I was a kid, I played all these games, and then I went to college, and right around the time I went to college. Um, it seemed like board gaming kind of died. Uh, TSR um, bought SPI, and then um, it just seemed like there were, you know, the games were in. You could go to a, a store, like a regular old toy store, and buy, you know, Third Reich um, for at one time, and now then you couldn't. And then um, sometime in the '90s, uh, things sort of started picking up again, and now it's just this full blown. I mean, the idea that you can right now. Go to Victory Point Games and for twenty three bucks plus shipping, uh, buy a copy of some game about you know like just Cuba and um, Cuba Splendid Little War um, and have it shipped to you and a whole, there's a whole bunch of people discussing it. Um, it's just it's fan, it's fantastic. I just yeah. can't. Uh, and even I'm even. Solitaire games, you know, like oh, a solitaire. Yeah. You know? I mean, the fact that it used to be, I used to have board games as a kid and have no one to play them with. Yep. And I would sit there and read the rules, and I'm sure you're yeah. in the same boat yeah. a lot of mm-hmm. times. I would yeah. read the rules and I would dream about how the game would go, and I would think, right. oh, this would be awesome. But there was no one to play with. Yeah, uh, that's why I started playing games by, by mail. That's why I started playing computer games. I mean, yeah. that's why I started picking up these crazy Gary Grigsby uh, war games that were way above my pay grade. Right, and yeah. I was powering through that kind of stuff. Well, if I can't find anyone to play this. This cool midway aircraft carrier game. Uh, I'm just going to play this on the computer. Yeah. Uh, another real quick thing I wanted to bring up yes. because it reminds me of a discussion you and I had about the hunters. Um, okay. So, so you asked, you know, here are the four factions in Fire in the Lake, right. and you know the the U.S. basically pulled out after the, the I think the Paris Accords, and and mm-hmm. they were gone, and they and so you asked well, why stop the game there because the other three factions they still you know they still have to duke it out for several more years right um and and he had this great discussion about you know deciding when to stop a game mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you and I had a bit of an argument about that mm-hmm. with this yep. solitaire mm-hmm. game called yep. the Hunters mm-hmm. where the the game ends at a certain point in the U-boat war. Right. Where basically the German U, but it was it was an exercise in futility. They would just go mm-hmm. out and die, and mm-hmm. that's where the designer decided to cut it off. And mm-hmm. I sort of felt like you know, no, it's a it's a career simulator. Mm-hmm. Uh, you should see your career through to the bitter end. Right. And, and your take on it was, well, there were no interesting mechanics. You would just sail out and die, and, and that right. would be it. Uh, right. So Volko had this great explanation about yeah even though one of the sides is pretty much out of there after the Paris Accords mm-hmm. in in seventy two. Right. Uh, Explaining why he felt like the game should stop at that point, mm-hmm. uh, right. and I really liked hearing that, and and just hearing a designer talk about, you know, why does a game end when it ends? You know, mm-hmm. what are the parameters of this box? You know, that I'm making. Yes. Right. Uh, what exactly. What am I gonna? You know, part of the design is what not to design, and part of it is what to design. And I really appreciate listening to Volko talk about that. I agree. I agree. Yeah. yeah. All right. So, uh, how long till July? Oh gosh. A, a thousand days. 
Like, yeah, it would be, uh, it'll, it'll be, uh, it's great. To, I mean, these games are coming out so fast, it feels like. I mean, it's, it, it's, uh, only been, I guess, Andy and Abyss came out two years ago, year and a half ago, like, summer of 2012. Right, that was the first of, and, and since then has been, a uh, Cuba Libre and Distant Plane? Distant Plane, yeah. And then you're gonna have, so basically, summer 2014, you'll have Fire in the Lake, so you'll have basically four games in two years. Um, which is crazy. I don't know how the, gosh, I, I have to say, for the, the amount of, uh, time it must take to put something like that together, um, is, is amazing. I mean, I can barely, uh, find enough time to do podcasts on these things. That, so it's just, that's great. That's, uh, and I need to get I need new friends uh, because if I can't find one dude to play Cuba Splendid Little War with me, I'm never going to find three more people to play <laughs> Fire in the Lake, much less Andean Abyss. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe you can convince me Fire in the Lake, but it's it's a it's a it's an investment. I mean, you really do have to sit down and and um, that game I could easily see. Uh, I mean, if you play just played Andean Abyss, I mean that that would take uh, that would take a good uh, a good whole day to play. Um, so. Well, you can you can always dream, or you can play it by postal mail. <laughs> Do they still have that? Is does mail still get delivered? Uh, I don't really know. I'm not Anwar. sure. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Bruce, this has been awesome. I really appreciate mm-hmm. it. And we want to thank again uh, Volko Runke. Yes, uh, thank you, Volko. That was awesome. And uh, go to Three Moves Ahead. You'll find Bruce's uh, other series there uh, mm-hmm. on Vietnam games. And yeah. if you're in the LA area and want to. Uh, uh, play uh, these kinds of games. I'm looking for new friends who will play them. Let me know. <laughs> yeah. And bring your copy of Cuba: The Splendid Little War. It's twenty two ninety nine. I've got. I'll provide that. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Perfect. Good. Yeah. All right. Excellent. All right. So thanks for everyone for listening, uh, and we'll see folks here on the Quarter to Three Games podcast next week. Oh, well, everybody's heard about the bird. bird, bird, bird.